Our question, continued Mr. Honeyfoot, is why magic has fallen from its once great state in our great nation. Our question is, sir, why is no more magic done in England? Mr. Norrell's small blue eyes grew harder and brighter, and his lips tightened, as if he were seeking to suppress a great and secret delight within him. It was as if, thought Mr. Segundus, he had waited a long time for someone to ask him this question, and had had his answer ready for years. Mr. Norrell said, I cannot help you with your question, sir, for I do not understand it. It is a wrong question, sir. Magic is not ended in England. I myself am quite a tolerable practical magician. Welcome to the Big Readcast. I'm Joel. I'm Bill. This is a books podcast that, however short on insight, is long, long, long on time, my friends. This is a pre-quarantine podcast that is made for quarantine times. (laughs) (laughs) Not only were we doing big books for no good reason years ago, we've also been doing big podcasts for no good reason, which actually podcast listening is, is down, I just realized. But but this one shouldn't be. This one is great. Um if you haven't heard <laughs> us be- if you haven't heard us before, Bill and I are just a couple of friends who literally read books uh five hundred pages or longer. Um we talk about it. Uh we try to have some real insights, but a lot of it is extemporaneous, so hopefully whatever we lack in real knowledge is made up for in charm. Um this this time this podcast is about Susanna Clark's Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Um it came out in O four or O three, I already forgot. Um Bill, you might know. 04, I think. Okay, 04, that's what I thought initially. So um, it is a crackerjack of a book. Um, I've read it before, actually. I think it's the first big read where I, or where one of us has read it before um, the other person had. So I think that'll be interesting. But uh, the big thing is to open us up is that, Bill, I think we we both love this book. (laughs) Yeah, no, I fell pretty madly in love with this book pretty much right away. Uh, Yeah, it's a good book. So I think. I think we have an outline for this podcast, which I say only because we often don't have an outline. Like uh, like for War and Peace, I don't think we had an outline. Or if we did, it was very cobbled together last minute. Um, and I think our love for this book is maybe – is maybe shown by the fact that like this is our longest notes document that we shared back and forth <laughs> for two years of doing this. Uh, there's some logistical reasons for that, but we have a lot to talk about. Um, the biggest thing is like when you are talking to someone about uh, sorry the biggest thing the first thing when you're talking about this book to someone else, Bill. Uh, what's your what's your tagline? Which like hey this book is how do you describe it? So. I mostly haven't talked about this book because we've been in quarantine. Uh, <laughs> when I have talked about the book, I think I've said that it's 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 about a couple of 19th century English mu- magicians. They're not musicians. Uh, they're magicians. Uh, one of them, by the way, is not named Doctor Strange. I'm going to call Jonathan Strange <laughs> Doctor Strange at yeah. least nine or ten times. There's also a character named Stephen in the book. So the number of times when I actually realized I had to reread a page because I had said, oh, yeah, here's what Stephen Strange is. Nope, that's not who that is. That's Doctor Strange. Oh He's a Marvel superhero. <laughs> But anyway, 
Uh, it's about a couple of 19th century English magicians and sort of English magic in and around the time of the Napoleonic War, and it's written like a 19th century novel. That's obviously not literally true, but that's, I think, the way I've done it quickly. Yeah, well, and the, the tagline is on the back of the book by, like, multiple critics, and I think, like, an inescapable way to describe this book is that it is like Jane Austen meets Harry Potter, right? Like, it really is, like, the tone and the wit and sort of the novel of manners Jane Austen approach about magic it's like an historical novel that's very accurate historically only also part of the history is that magic is real and being recovered um like most of our books it's entirely too long to actually recap what happens but i mean as always bill do you want to give it a go (laughs) yeah sorry i'm gonna give it a good try uh so this one i'm gonna be a little more detailed on than i sometimes am not just because i liked the book a lot because i like most of the books we read but also because the book weaves a pretty complicated web of plot and characters and then pays them all off in about 50 pages at the end. And I think if I don't set them up, you'll be very confused. So the book is divided into three parts. Uh, the first part is called Mr. Norrell. The second part is called Jonathan Strange. And the third part is called John Uskglass, which is one of the names for the Raven King. And we'll talk about what that means in a little bit. Uh, the book is... Thus kind of interesting, as you might have guessed, it means that one of the main protagonists doesn't really show his face until about a quarter of the way through the book. But you're, you're made to see his presence throughout the first part because one of the interesting features of this book is it has footnotes all over the place. The footnotes will sometimes be sort of citations to fake scholarly works and kind of a Borgesian sense, although she doesn't actually do too much of that. Usually she'll do a citation and then give you like three or four sentences about what that's about. And often the books themselves are important Uh, Not only because of the importance that magic books take in the story, but also because both of the characters are writing things back and forth. Um, Here's really how it goes. So we open in York in England, where a bunch of magicians are meeting. English magicians are meeting to discuss magic. But these are theoretical magicians. They are not practical magicians, because there are no practical magicians in England. What that means is, although there are a lot of people around the country who talk about how cool magic is and how it worked and here's what happened back in the battle of 15 what's it when so-and-so did this or that with the fairies it would be ghost to actually try to cast a spell and no one's done it for a very long time about 300 years really um however uh there's a new guy in the in the society named segundus and he has the temerity to ask why isn't anyone casting spells why is there no magic and in the, in the process of investigating this, he realizes that all of the really good books of magic have been bought by this guy named Gilbert Norrell, who lives basically all by himself in a big mansion somewhere in York. So he goes to visit Mr. Norrell, uh, and also discovers that Mr. Norrell claims, at least, to be a practical magician. When he tells the magicians about this in general, they challenge him to prove it, and then he makes uh, all the statues in the York Minster talk. In so doing, he then comes to the attention of English society, goes to London to try to offer his services to help fight in the Napoleonic War. There he meets uh, a couple of sort of sycophantic toadies who decide to help him out because it will help their reputation, named Mr. Drawlight and Mr. Lascelles. Uh, he tries to get the attention of a politician named Sir Walter Pole, who is like, my goodness, you're, you're asking me to hire a magician? What, what are you, crazy? However, as it happens, uh, Sir Pole is about to marry a young woman named Emma Wintertown, who was very sick, and dies. And so, Mr. Norrell uh, resurrects Lady Pole, as she's about to be known. He goes to the house, and he casts a spell to bring her back. In doing so, he has to make a deal with a powerful fairy spirit, who is only ever referred to as the gentleman with the thistle-down hair. 
He's, the gentleman with the thistle-down hair says yes, he'll bring her back, but he gets to keep half her life. That sets up most of the major conflicts in the story. I'm going to try to move faster now. Uh, Mr. Norrell starts helping with the Napoleonic War. In the process, he meets a street magician named Vinculus, who is not an, a magician in the literal sense, but is one of the sort of mountebanks who's been ripping people off. Um, Vinculus accosts Mr. Norrell and delivers to him a prophecy. I'm not going to try to go into all the prophecy, but it talks about two magicians bringing magic back to England, and it has an important line about how a nameless slave shall be king. Uh, Mr. Norrell's servant Childermask kicks Vinculus out of town, but also gives him a couple of spells, uh, like pieces of paper that will, will do various things. On Mr. Vinculus's way out of town, he meets uh, a man named Jonathan Strange, who is a relatively young English nobleman who's kind of not sure what to do with his life. His father has just died, and he's trying to get a profession, mostly so it'll impress a girl. Uh, <laughs> on the way, Jonathan Strange meets Vinculus. Uh, Vinculus tells him he's bound to be a magician, gives him the sp- or sells him the spells, and wanders off. Jonathan Strange tries to cast one of the spells, mostly on a lark, and lo and behold, it works. Back in London, Lady Pole, who is at first, after her resurrection, very full of energy, is now spending half of all of her days in a sort of a catatonic state, and it has been revealed that she and a servant, who we'll talk about in a moment, are spending all of their nights uh, in the fairy court of the Gentleman of the Thistledown Hair. The servant is, in a, is a gentleman named Stephen Black. He is a black man, uh, and he is the butler for Sir Walter Pole. Um, we fast forward now. Jonathan Strange has learned a little bit of how to be a decent magician. He goes to meet Mr. Norrell, and he becomes his pupil. Uh, they have a relatively good time to begin with, but they also start debating... Uh, having a serious discussion about who the Raven King is. The Raven King is an old, the English, like, great magician who conquered northern England uh, many, many years ago and ruled it for about 200 years. He's the source of real English magic. Uh, Jonathan Strange thinks the Raven King is pretty cool. Mr. Norrell hates him. Jonathan Strange goes and fights in the Napoleonic War over in France and Spain. He becomes a hero. Um, meanwhile, back in London, Stephen Black and Lady Pole are still spending all of their nights in Lost Hope, which is the gentleman's kingdom. Uh, the gentleman really takes a real liking to Stephen Black, tells him he's going to be a king. Eventually, Strange attacks Mr. Norrell's ideas in public, and they have a public falling out about the Raven King. Then, Mr. Strange's wife dies. Uh, her name is Arabella Strange, and she dies, and it's pretty clear that she's basically been taken after death to Lost Hope because the gentleman with the thistle-down hair has sort of taken a liking to her as well. We then fast forward a little bit further. Lady Pole uh, wanders out of her house, where she's usually in a catatonic state, tries to shoot Mr. Norrell, because, or Mr. Norrell, because of the horrible situation he's put her in. She is taken to an asylum, which is actually being run by Mr. Segundus, because of a subplot we don't have time for right now. Uh, on the way there, Stephen Black meets Vinculus, the street, street magician, and hears the prophecy. Also, we're going to learn about how Vinculus is also a book. Uh, we're going <laughs> to... Vinculus is... Uh, his father had possession of the Raven King's last book, and because of a dare, ate the book. It's really good, I promise. It's, uh, it's so good. And then later, when Vinculus was born, the book is tattooed all over his body. It's magic. Oh, it's, I mean, it's, not it's tattooed, one of the it's best magic, details in the, whole, in the whole book, I think. I love really, that really detail. <laughs> so Vinculus, in addition to being a prophet and a, a drunk, is also literally, like, the last on his body is tattooed like the last hope of English magic. Okay, we're getting close. Strange runs off to Venice uh, after his wife dies. There he meets Lord Byron, mostly just for fun. It's not like a major plot. He also meets a young woman he starts to maybe consider uh, having a flirtation with named Flora. And most importantly, he begins to realize there's a connection between uh, fairy 
and madness, and so he concocts a plan to drive himself slightly crazy in controlled uh, bursts by meeting an old uh, crazy woman and sort of distilling her essence. The, the, to be clear, the, the cat lady of all cat ladies, she speaks cat. She is like the yeah. She the, only speaks cat. She's the ur cat lady. It's it's great. It's so good. It's a fantastic, fantastic scene. Uh, there he goes to Lost Hope on purpose just to communicate with the gentleman with the thistledown hair, and there he sees Arabella in one of their dances. So he goes kind of really mad because he's going to try to rescue his wife. Uh, keeps taking the go crazy drug all the time, which allows him to actually contact Fairy. The gentleman with the thistledown hair gets mad at him, curses him to be followed around by a pillar of everlasting night, which is dope it's um, so good <laughs> again i keep strange saying strange decides thing. <laughs> strange decides the only thing he can do is to basically wake up all of english magic very forcibly to draw out the raven king uh from wherever he's hiding to come back and help him get his wife back so he summons draw light the sycophant to him and tells him to tell every magician in england by which he means not just himself and mr norrell but a couple of his old students and then just everyone who's ever been associated with magic basically throughout the story. However, before he can do that, the other sycophant kills him. He's done some of it, but not all of it. Mr. Norrell's servant has gotten the message, though, so he goes up and he actually manages to cure Lady Pole of her insanity, and the other sycophant gets lost in fairy forever, which is a great scene we'll talk about more later. Strange goes back and he actually meets Mr. Norrell, and at first you're expecting some sort of magical duel, and instead Strange is like, no man, I just really want your help to rescue my wife. And Mr. Norrell's <laughs> like, oh, cool. Then let's... All right, I guess I thought you were going to kill me. That's all right. Let's do that. And so they decide to summon the Raven King, but they don't know his name, um, which is important because you can't cast these kinds of spells if you don't know people's names. The Raven King goes by a bunch of uh, aliases, including John Uskglass, as in John, John Uskglass. But uh, no one knows his name. What they know about him is that he was a slave who was taken off to fairy and then somehow did so well for himself that he not only conquered a kingdom in fairy and a kingdom in hell, but he came out and conquered all of northern England. Um, the gentleman has realized that they've cured Lady Pole and he's furious. He's going to go cast various curses on various people. And so he goes his way up there, kills Vinculus on the way, and says he's going to, again, do various bad things and go ahead and finally make Stephen Black a king. But... Uh, in the process, back in Yorkshire, um, Stephen, or Stephen Strange, see, I'm going to do it. Jonathan Strange <laughs> and Mr. Norrell have made a prop, uh, located that the Raven King is in the area, but they don't know his name. And so they decide to try to make all of English hills and valleys and rivers bow down to him. But since they don't know his name, they just call him the Nameless Slave, which is what um, they think is the reference in the prophecy. But it turns out that the Nameless Slave in the prophecy is actually referring to Stephen Black, who, of course... As a black man was born on a slave ship, his mother died in childbirth before she could name him, and he was taken in as a servant by the Pole family. So Stephen King is, very briefly, bowed down to by all of England as the King of England. He, realizing that the gentleman with the thistle-down hair is going to do various bad things, buries the gentleman beneath the earth where he dies, and then is no longer a king, but wanders off into the fairyland and is now the new king of Lost Hope, uh, presumably for a very long time. Vinculus and Childermass very, very briefly meet... A man who is pretty clearly the Raven King. Um, it's his only actual appearance in the book. Arabella is rescued. Strange and Nor Norrell, however, are banished, sort of, in time and space, where they're basically traveling through the TARDIS. <laughs> it's true. And, yeah, uh, that's actually Vinculus pretty good. Vinculus and Childermass get together and decide to start teaching true magic all over England, not just to very wealthy people, but to all kinds of folks, including, gasp, even a woman. And that's the book, basically. That's like seven minutes long, and I'm sorry, but I felt like it was probably necessary. What did I miss, Joel? 
Well, so here, here's what's crazy is that I, I think I think big plot point wise, not much, you know. And that's but, but this book is so wild because I I don't actually think of it as a super plot heavy book. You know what I mean? Because like you, like you said, the last 50, 70 pages wraps up so many things so quickly, which is um, which is actually really Dickensian. So I feel like we talk about what you know, what is this book? And I say, you know, it's uh I feel like it's its quickest tagline is let's just say Jane Austen and Harry Potter have a baby. You know what I mean? Like it is a it is a bastard fusion of such different sensibilities. But um like the Dickensian part is for me there's a lot of Dickensian parts. But what you just described is almost the most Dickensian thing, which is that he's the ultimate plate spinner, right? So like you read a you read a Dickens novel and uh, it starts out it always starts out with a bang and then um it sort of unspools but to mix metaphors, as it unspools, he kind of has – he has like two plates in the air and then he just keeps adding plates. And it's the same person. It's like all the plates feel vaguely connected. It's the same person juggling or they're all related. And he just keeps adding, 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 adding. And then like a thunderbolt at the end, at least relatively speaking, like in Bleak House, this is definitely true where it's like 600 pages of novel of manners and society and class stuff. And then it literally – is like one of the first modern detective stories <laughs> for the last like 200 pages. All of a sudden, he just brings it together with a bang. And I feel like that's what she does. She throws things in the air really high, and then she spins like eight plates that are all semi-related but different for the rest of the novel. And then all of a sudden, she stacks them neatly at the end. And it's, it's, it's crazy because, again, I don't think of it as like a super plotty novel – but of course, so much happens because we go through like this decade of Napoleonic Wars and um, all of these really intricate interpersonal things that are <laughs> that are so closely woven into like real historical events and an alternative magical history, right? That's like that's like the the bulkiness of the novel is that she has all of this actual interesting history from that era. And she has just as much alternative history, and that's that's a lot, right? Like this would be a lot to do a water a Waterloo novel, and she has a Waterloo novel inside of this novel. Do you know what I mean? Like that's so much to get through. Well, I I, I, I hear what you're saying about how you you maybe didn't think of it as you know a plot novel, and I maybe didn't either until I started trying to put together the summary and was like, I don't know which of these things I can leave out, <laughs> because the style of the book and the presentation is so good that even though I was reading it as what's going to happen next, I mean I was, oh totally, but it was also just really enjoying every sentence as I would, you know what I mean? Which is is not often how it goes. Often you read a fun fantasy novel and you only really care about what's going to happen next, and the prose is fine, but that's it. The whole beauty of this novel is that, like, it is as plot heavy as any sort of fantasy adventure in some sense. But actually, what keep what keeps me reading from the very beginning um, is kind of the most classic of British, you know, novelist tricks, and it's charm. She's this the witty, like the the narrator slash Susanna Clark is this like witty tour guide. Um, through a bunch of people's lives who all have like significant importance, but also they're mostly just like interesting foils to talk about, you know, <laughs> to talk about what it means to be human in the same drawing room with other humans. You know what I mean? Like she, like that's, she teases that stuff out even while she sends uh, Jonathan Strange to, you know, to war. And we see a whole war novel unfold. And yet even the war novel is often about like he and the Duke of Wellington's personalities you know, kind of going tit for tat until they agree, right? Um, but yeah, that's kind of off the subject. So yeah, it's a, it is, it is like all of our books, but even more than I think I remember before I reread it. It is a big book. It fits everything into this, and I do think we'd be, you know, it'd be, it'd be good for us to maybe spend more time on like 
like we we've summarized the plot. I think the tagline is Jane Austen meets Harry Potter. But um, I mean, what else does it fit in? Do you think? Like what? <laughs> like like what other what other things is it stealing from, or did it remind you of? So I just read Sense and Sensibility the other day. So honestly, the Jane Austen connection might be the only one I can make right now. Yeah, I don't I don't know if I have anything else. Uh, Gaiman, <laughs> I guess Neil Gaiman. No, Neil Gaiman for sure. Well, and that's the thing is actually like I feel like there's about 20 names you could just start throwing out there and it would all feel a little correct. Like Andrew Lang was the okay, great. Okay, so I should you're, – you're about to do this real quick. You've got – no, this is – I'm interrupting you for a reason. You've got a list of names here. Okay. Um, I don't know who any of those people are. So <laughs> <laughs> so you're probably right, but this is one of those moments where we know which of us studied English in graduate school and which of us didn't. <laughs> Okay, that's fair. That's totally fair. Well, you know what's so what's actually funny about the list partly is that um, coincidentally, I I kind of have been in, like on a fairy tale kick um, for this year. Like, so uh, one of the people who I thought of first was actually pretty, very obscure. Um, it's his, his name's Robert Kirk. He was a 17th century um, Scottish minister, and he has one of the most important accounts of like. Uh, um, fairy tales and so he basically he did like an oral history where he took the stories from his parish and wrote them down exactly as his parishioners talked about them and then his manuscript was like lost for a long time until andrew lang who's a victorian folklorist who helps like revive fairy tales i mean um if you read uh i forget the title if you read if you read tolkien's like you know um, on on other on fairy worlds or whatever it is on fantasy his like big essay yeah on fairy stories yeah, yeah it's been a while stories. but I have read yeah, it. yeah it's been years and years but he he actually he uses Andrew Lang as a foil for like what he's not talking about <laughs> a lot okay um but Andrew Lang recovers this manuscript and it it's eerie how much of it Susanna Clark fits into this so like the because the book you know again Robert Kirk his book is actually from the 17th century and it's about real people's experiences supposedly um. But he talks about the doubling of folks, like, you know, that you would meet yourself coming and going. He talks about the mysterious other world. He's the first one to kind of really carve out the idea of fairies as in between angels and humans, at least in the British Isles. He carves that out. Um, and so, yeah, so I think this book, it like, it fits in a lot of like actual fairy tale history in the sense that people used to believe in fairies. And in Iceland, I think, still do believe in fairies. <laughs> um, but even uh, the book itself name checks a lot of its predecessors. So like it takes, it makes jokes about Mrs. Radcliffe, who you know is known for writing gothic novels, and of course it actually name checks Jane Austen. Um, I just had my whole Dickensian thing, but um, I, I would say George MacDonald. It reminds me of she does some letter stuff that reminds me of like uh, Samuel Richardson, who wrote like maybe the first novel called Clarissa. Um, you know, I mean, like, yeah, so there's just this incredible synthesis of, like, English literary heritage in a book that is, like, putatively about English identity. And honestly, like, the second read-through, which I read it, like, nine years ago or whatever, but I, I think I told you this already over the phone, maybe. I, I think I have more respect for this book now than I did then because I, I think – and she's doing a lot of it by instinct, but, like, she really is jamming so much in there. But I think she borrows the right amount, right? Like, so I, at no point was I like, oh, this person, um, like Jonathan Strange, um, she brings, you know, Lord Byron in there as a friend of Jonathan Strange, but also as a foil, because of course Jonathan Strange is sort of the Byronic hero in some ways, right? Um, if anyone is. But she brings him in to kind of point out the differences, and it allows the book to say, hey, yeah, we've borrowed from 
Byron, but actually uh, we borrowed just enough to give it flavor, not to make a facsimile. And I, I think that she has actually like kind of made something new out of a lot of stuff other people have already done, which I, I think is really rare, to be honest, that something is not derivative when it so clearly takes, you know, um, when it even name checks the stuff it takes from. You know what I mean? Like it's not even hiding the fact that it's riffing on Austin, but it doesn't feel derivative, derivative of Austin because it gets weirder and weirder with the fairy stuff. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I thought it was an incredible synthesis of like these various, you know, pillars of British literature. Um, but yeah, so what, yeah, so besides Austin and fairy stuff, um, the other, the Kinsey and stuff I wanted to touch on, um, it's episodic. So she has kind of, which is not very Jane Austen. She has these episodic, you know, asides and almost like you would read in a serial like Dickens wrote where like you would get your magazine for that week and it was that installment of Bleak House and it's now about a different character. Um, but also, <laughs> I wish I had more examples. Did you not think she had like the perfect amount of like tongue-in-cheek naming of characters? I thought her naming of characters, like that's almost the most Dickensian thing about this. They're so, they're, I, some of them are so pointed and they're like supposed symbolism and some of them are just like perfect regional representations. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, the names are all very, I mean, Mr. Drawlight oh, is the so gadfly. Good. Like, come on. Like, <laughs> that's so good. <laughs> that's very good. Um, Mr. Segundus is the second man i mean it's very much what he is right, right he's yeah, the totally. other guy who's also sort of trying to be a magician but can't really do it until the very end like uh, but it doesn't feel too crass most of the time again draw light is pretty on the nose but it's also so was dickens a lot of the time well right? no it's yeah. and he's not the main character and it's yeah no and so yeah i think sometimes she she definitely leans into like how symbolic the names are but also she like, little touches like it stood out to me for some reason I've, I've been reading a lot of welsh stuff lately but of course the like one of the few welsh names is david evans like a super common welsh name and it's just perfect david evans the welsh methodist minister boom nailed it you know and, and she does it again and again like um i'm gonna actually mess up their name because the characters mess it up so much but in the end of the book jonathan strange befriends you know um some fellow british tourists and their names are grace street graystone Shoot. Gray Steel? Gray Steel. <laughs> that sounds right. <laughs> because Yeah, but I mean there's a running joke in the in the yeah, book that no, no one can remember their name because, Gray something. So yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> well and the and the thing is like their name is redundant, right? Like Gray Steel. It's like it's a gray you know, because like, they're just kind of boring English people. And she she fleshes them out as characters. But um yeah, she just and it's a small thing, but like I think a lot of people try and do Dickensian and stuff, and I, I that's one of the few things I feel like no one gets right, and she she nails it. Um, but it's it's a really yeah, I thought it was a really good representation of like of of how I don't know what you thought. I don't want to get off this too soon of how like whimsical and yet terrifying fairy stuff is. I mean, like it's both like very very funny, but it's taken to the point where it's just absolutely you know, um, horrifying. <laughs> um, so I, I mean, I, I think you see a lot of fairy stuff in, in fiction, I think. And there's a couple of role-playing game settings actually that are all about it. That's kind of, we're not going to go into that too much, but so I've seen this sort of thing. Oh, well, they're the fairies and they're funny, but they'll pull out your spleen. And like, I've seen that a lot and it's, it's fine, but I have rarely seen it done so well as it, maybe never actually yeah, where I really never. bought it, you know, like the gentleman with the thistle down hair is horrifying. And he's genteel and friendly, and everything he does makes sense to him in his weird way. And he just kind of blithers on through and doesn't realize that he's screwing up everyone's life. Wouldn't even understand that he would be doing that, you know? Right. Lady Pole spends her days 
exhausted and catatonic because she spends all of her nights dancing around his wild parties. Because he's like, yeah, great. So you get to go to all my cool parties and you don't have to deal with all the boring Englishmen. Isn't that awesome? What's your, you know, like Stephen Black, he keeps giving him like enormous piles of gold and like magic scepters and stuff. And Mr. Black, of course, is a black man living in England in 1815. He's like, I can't, if someone yeah, sees me with this, you know yeah, what I mean? Make, make, make on me, yeah. <laughs> and he just doesn't have any comprehension of that. And again and again, Stephen tries to explain to him like, look, I can't be a king. Um, of England for some pretty obvious reasons. He's like, I don't understand. You're handsome and smart and, you know, very well-bred and very, you know, like, great manners is what I mean. It's like, I don't understand. Why wouldn't you be king? And he's like, well, that's not how any of this works. And he's like, well, that's how it works in fairy, and that's the end of the conversation. And at one point, when he wants to learn what Stephen Black's real name is, he just goes around murdering a bunch of people because that's yeah. the best way to do the magic to do it. Um, and it's just thrown in really callously, like, yeah, so, you know, when your mom was in childbirth, she was thinking of your name. And so all of her screams that were caught in childbirth that were caught in the boards of the slave ship, right? I had to go track down those boards. Now, they were built into this house. And so the easiest way to do that was to burn the house down and everyone in it. And then the screams were released and I could ask them what name she was thinking. And Stephen's like, you did what? You know, <laughs> it's, I don't know. I'm with you. I don't think I've ever seen fairy, F-A-E-R-I-E, done so well as being both fun and charming and also deeply deeply troubling well i i think it's somehow she never loses the tension that like that the the man with the thistle down hair he is never actually funny right like even though he like he's ridiculous and he's ludicrous and he's sort of absurd um and he is certainly whimsical with his balls and stuff he like he weirdly is, ne is never played for laughs per se you know what i mean like i feel like a lot of times when people try and do like a light dark mixture they try and basically make the light side kind of farcical you know and the man with this down hair he's often like again i think he, he is funny in his own dark way like when he um when he has steven dress him or you know like there's certain times when he's kind of like you know but he's, but he's never silly and i just yeah i think she never loses the tension of like you know, if there's a villain of this novel, like, he is sort of the villain. But even he, of course, is interestingly complicated plot-wise and not character-wise because he is sort of Stephen Black's great advocate and po and also points out the great mistreatment of Stephen Black <laughs> by the entire island <laughs> that Stephen Black has been trapped on, right? So, like, there's always this complication she adds to anything she does, which I think also makes it less maybe farcical or silly but i mean in her descriptions i mean she has so much fun with you know again the names so he, he, the fairy is the king of lost hope lost hope is the name <laughs> of his kingdom right and talks about like the you know broken down estate manor and the field of bones outside of his house and all, like all these details that are sort of just if there's any whimsy to it, it's how quickly she passes over it, right? Like, so at one point, Stephen's looking at a bunch, of, a bunch of tapestries that are woven from human skin, and they're terrifying in these horrible, specific ways. But they're sort of just touched on, and then it moves along, right? There's no, like, real weight given to it at the level of paragraph. Well, this, I think, is one of the great strengths of the book. It's not just fear. It's how the magic works. I guess I'm going to—we're uh, going to skip ahead in our outline now, I Let's guess. Let's do it. Because that was just too good a transition. <laughs> um, so— Whenever you're reading a book about magicians, you're going to have to talk about the magic system, Lord save us, because you have to do that, right? Like, you have to have some idea, how does this magic work, right? We're spending a bunch of time with these people, and they're learning about bringing English magic back. We're going to have to talk about how magic works. In some fantasy novels, this is great, because someone has a really interesting idea. It's like, I actually think the name of the wind's magic system is really fascinating. But often it's just really dull, and always 
if it's gone into any detail, it makes it not so much magic anymore, right? Right. It, it quits being purely magic, and it starts being, okay, here's an alternate way of, you know, doing, doing science technology. <laughs> and that's fine, and it has its uses, and I like D&D as much as the next guy. But it quits feeling magical. And this book, I think, never quits feeling magical because I think she consistently gives you exactly the right amount of information about how any of the spells work and how the magic works, which is to say, not very much. Um, you know, I, often someone will just do a spell because you'll just think about it for a second. Or like, Jonathan Strange literally teleports entire cities around and we have no idea how he does it. We don't see him paint things on the wall or draw sigils on the ground when he does that. He just does it. Right. But occasionally you'll get it. Like, they have a location spell they do where he gets a bowl of water and he draws it in quarters and says, all right, is this person in, you know, heaven, hell, earth, or fairy, right? And then a light pops off and you kind of go down from there. And that's fun because, okay, you learn a little bit more about how the spell works, but it's still weird as heck, right? Which So it keeps being strange and hard to predict. Or, like, at one point, when he when he's going to decide he's going to needs to go mad in controlled doses, he literally like draws this woman's madness out of her into, like, a dead mouse and then boils the mouse down into a little, like, potion that he drinks little pieces of, right? And that makes sense in sort of a logical... I mean, that's not logical, obviously, but you can sort of understand that without really having any idea how it works, which I think is exactly the right way to handle the magic system, if you will, right? Like, totally. enough that you don't feel like she's just making it up as she goes. No, I totally and agree. she is, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it's completely arbitrary. It feels like there are rules. It feels like a person could study it, but we're not going to study it. We're not magicians, right? <laughs> and I think that is so good. No, I, I totally agree. And I, I think that's not, she deals with it perfectly in that um, it's, it's sort of, I mean, so I, so I think this is a book that is actually like mostly about books to be honest like i think it's about writing it's about like literature and it's not only about that but it it is like so concerned with how these two different magicians it's concerned with them as like artists basically right so that their ongoing feud is actually about the nature of magic right is it more scholastic as mr norrell presents it or is it more romantic and mystical as Jonathan Strange presents it. And of course, like, she never totally loses that tension because, you know, I, I, I think because of what you're saying, how much she shows us, but also because that's the tension of the book, right? Is that we're arguing over, like, how do mysterious things exist in the world? Like, how, for example, this is a dumb one, but like, how, for, okay, <laughs> sorry to put you on the spot, Bill. Like, you are a naturally gifted singer. When I met you when you were 13, you'd, yeah, your mom was a singer and you grew up with music and there was certainly a nurture element. But it's you were gifted in a way that like other people were not gifted with singing. And that's sort of inherently mysterious, right? Like there's a mystery that we can never actually, even if we're like, oh, we talk about vocal cords, we talk about training, you talked about breath exercises, and you did this and that. Like, yes, there are ways to enhance and decrease, but actually fundamentally, the gift of singing at least always has an element of mystery. And I think that she does that really well with magic, where she never divorces it from basically being a, a creative art. And it feels like the tension between Mr. Norrell and Jonathan Strange is exactly like how creative is this supposed to be, right? Like, is this supposed to be like a scholastic sort of endeavor that includes, you know, kind of critical creativity? Or is it supposed to be a poetical, romantic creativity that is totally instinctual? Which, is, of course, is why Jonathan Strange is sort of Byronic, right? Like, Mr. Norrell practice, sorry, practices and studies for, you know, 30 years by himself <laughs> in his in library. And Jonathan Strange sort of just, like, starts making up spells as soon as he realizes he can do magic. Um and I think, so I think, I think actually, we, as far as the magic system, it in some ways is a key to like 
the brilliance of the whole book, which is that, you know, um, we can never totally dissect the mystery, the enchantment of the world. And this book really brings how that enchantment is there, even when it's confined to like a recognizable history. I'm kind of touching on stuff I want to talk about later, but does most of that make sense at least? It does. And I also think that, I mean, thinking of the magic as a creative art in the book is also right because, um, of course, they're both very concerned, Mr. Norrell in particular, but they're both concerned with not just how a person does magic, but how an English gentleman does magic. Yes, right? yes. Like one of the great lines is when um, Lord Wellington, who's going to go on and win Waterloo later, asks, can a magician kill a man by magic? Lord Wellington asked Strange. Strange frowned. He seems to dislike the question. I suppose a magician might, he admitted, but a gentleman never could. And that's exactly the thrust of the thing, because, of course, the other magicians that everyone's thinking of at the beginning of the book, by halfway through, the only magicians people can think of are these two war heroes and great, you know, icons of the society. But at the beginning, all the magicians are the street mountebanks, right, who have their yellow... Um, booths and they go up and they they do various hoaxes right it's this low form of entertainment you go and you know it's nothing but you give them a little bit of money and they right make a bunch of noise and sprinkle a lot of powder around which of course is also one of the which makes a lot of sense again if you think of it as a creative art right like well i'm not just trying to write low doggerel verse exactly. for everybody i'm trying to write real poetry right you know? i'm not just trying to, to to write trash i'm trying to write high art and that's kind of the the tension here is, you know, because they, uh, Norrell in particular gets very offended whenever anyone mistakes him for, a, <clears throat> you know, a street conjurer and actually tries to get them all run out of England or of London, succeeds in getting them all run out of London. Um, so, so I think I think you're absolutely right. That That's the connection is how do we do this creative thing? Um, not only what is the best way to do it in sort of a platonic sense, you know, what is the form of it? Is it romantic right. or is it scholastic? But also how do we do this? as gentlemen, and again, as English gentlemen, because the yes. question throughout the whole book is, what is the nature of English magic in particular? And, and note, and Joel and I talked about this in advance, but not not British magic even, but English magic, right? Because all the English magicians are consistently um, distinguished from, like, Welsh, and not as much Scottish, but even a little bit Scottish, right? It's like at one point yeah. when they're thinking about the great English magicians, they say, well, Merlin doesn't count because Merlin was half Welsh and half, half infernal. infernal. <laughs> and so he doesn't count. You know? <laughs> I, I love that aside. That's a, that's a perfect aside. Um, well, that's, that's, that actually does bring it. So we, I, we should get into the history of it a little bit. But I do think her like concern with the Englishness of things and it being a literary project is also interesting because, again, a lot of like the fairy stuff I've been reading lately, especially as it concerns sort of like – recent um, Arthurian legends, it's all very like Welsh or Celtic of some kind, right? Like it's Cornish or it's Welsh or it's Irish or Scottish, which, you know, they're all different varieties, but like their their language root all kind of goes back to um, to Celtic stuff. Um, from the little I know, it could be very wrong. No one at me. Bill, you can correct me, but no one else. I don't care. Um, I mean, you know more about it than I do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I think of fairy stuff, I often think about Celtic. You know, I think about yes. words I can't pronounce because they're spelled... Because whoever transliterated Welsh was really playing a very fun practical yeah. joke on the rest of us. Such a, <laughs> but anyway. I know. But so, no, so yeah, so there's there's this, you know, there's this Celtic, Pictish prehistory that like Jeffrey of Monmouth talks about. And it's all, but it's always very like rooted in sort of the, the you know, the Celtic pre-English era. And so this book, of course, instead of like having Arthur or someone, you know, someone from Wales, basically, or the North Country or from Ireland, instead of having Arthur at the center of it with Merlin, 
uh, Susanna Clark, she basically takes the legend of Arthur and Merlin and puts them into one person, John Osglask, and, and instead of making him Scottish or something, he's, he's a northerner, but in the sense that he's from York, right? Like his northerness, as you point out in our notes, is not a Scottish northerness, it's an English northerness. So even like the conflict of magic you know, being romantic or otherwise, it's all an English debate. And I, But I also think it's so smart because it's a little Tolkien-esque. You know, Tolkien talks about that Arthur is very much maybe like a French legend because, of course, of Mallory and how it was popularized through ballads, right? Like that for a long time, it was sort of a legend that was controlled by French writers. And so in some ways, Middle-earth is, you know, him getting, a you know, a British sensibility. And him, I would say it's more British for sure. But anyway, the point being is, like, she has a similar project, I think, and that she puts an English made-up figurehead as sort of the heart of the entire mythos, right? And um, Jonathan Strange, as you kind of were alluding to, you know, we read a little chapter that's supposedly written by Jonathan Strange, and he talks about that if we're going to discuss, you know, English magic, we can't talk about Merlin, we can't talk about Joseph of Arimathea, we must talk about this made-up Raven King that Clark puts at the center of her book. And I, I think it's really smart, because it just it just continually makes the reader and the characters circle this idea of, like, national identity, right? That this is a book that's weirdly concerned with what it means to inherit a nationality, um, to the point that I think it drives, like, most of the metaphors, I think it's the reason that Stephen Black is included, right? Someone who basically grew up a British man, but of course he was explicitly excluded by the British in power. And so, yeah, you know, I think it's just such a, I don't know, to put John, to make someone like John Usklask is, is really smart. It's just a really smart way to ground the novel, you know, in a, in a figurative space that is, you know, built by your world that you've created. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, and one of the things I think is interesting about this book is often when you deal with alternate history or alternate reality stuff, people will look at real history and pick a point and then say, well, what if instead this happened, right? And then we'll follow off, right. you know, what if the South won the war is kind of the obvious boring right. one. Um, but, you know, any any number of things. Um, I read an alternate history English one once where it was some really tiny thing that this person said. That would have changed everything if, like, Henry II had turned left, you know, and... <laughs> um, this book is different. This book says, what if the past was different and we ended up in the same place? Yeah, actually, you know? yes. Because, like, Jonathan Strange does a whole bunch of really awesome magic to help the English, and it means they win Waterloo on, I think, the same time frame yeah, no, that they the did in real. I guess I didn't actually check no, it, I think but it's I think the it's the same, same time frame. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's this whole different, like, 300-year period when England was divided into two kingdoms, and it ends up with 19th century England exactly the same and you know, and even the actions of the characters just sort of keep things on track, um, which is kind of a wild Connie Willis idea. But anyway, um, the Raven King, though, she, she places him as so central to the history of this alternate world. Like when at one point Jonathan Strange goes and visits the madness of King, you know, King George III to try to cure him of his madness, he sees a huge mural painted on the king's apartments, which is the king in the south and the king in the north, right? Like yeah. shaking hands, the king in the south being whichever actual English king she decided was there at the time, Henry V or whoever. And then the king of the north being the Raven King, right? Whose capital, again, is not in Edinburgh. It's in Newcastle. It's <laughs> um, a bit when they talk about how technically it is still a united kingdom, right? Much like we have in the real world right. where you sort of have this really bizarre nested sovereign states that aren't really except they are sometimes. That's how it is there in 1815 in this alternate England, right? You have right. northern England and a southern England. And technically the king of England is like the regent or something of North England, right? It's functionally the same. <laughs> But it's written in their constitution that if the Raven King comes back, 
he's going to be the king of North England again. <laughs> just, like that's in the there's one I point know. when somebody says, "Why can't we stop them from flying the Raven King's banner?" And one of the uh, children masks, who's actually from the North, says, "Well, because he's the king. Like right. you can't do that." That's <laughs> um, so yeah, she, she she places this question of like, what is English magic? And what is English identity at the center of this alternate history as it goes? It's just so well. Well, and what so I I kept thinking so I mean it's 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 sort of a cheap out to just say this is you know Jane Austen meets Harry Potter, um, but I kind of I kept coming back to that Harry Potter idea because there's something that's so that's so enchanting about the way that she writes about magic you know happening in the world as it exists, which I know like a lot of people do, but um. But I feel like she and J.K. Rowling have have like have achieved a similar synthesis, and it's totally based on the fact that like the magic changes nothing about the history recounted. So right, like in Harry Potter, you know, when they're fighting Voldemort the first the first time, right, like or or the Grindelwald, whoever it is, Grindelwald, I think, like it's basically World War Two, right? Like Dumbledore fights Grindelwald in World War Two, and it sort of tracks the exact timeline of the Muggle world, right? And of course, Harry Potter takes place in a boarding school that looks a lot like other boarding schools. And it's sort of everything you recognize about an actual English existence, but with all of these enchanting elements to it. And I think that's, you know, what makes it so beguiling is that it really is just our world with the, with kind of the wondrous part brought to the forefront. And I think it does, like, it invites this weird, appreciation for me at least like when i talk about like the mystery of singing and stuff i think it actually invites this weird appreciation of how weird our world is like there are actual short fairy stories in our world sure but also <laughs> i mean like the history of waterloo is already insane <laughs> it's already sort of an, an incredible impossible thing that happened um and she uses magic to kind of talk about it in a more fun way and she does things that matter to magic i don't mean like you know to marginalize magic as just a handmade of history, but she does honestly, I think, bring a lot of elements of history or of just being alive to the forefront that are, you know, that are impossible if the alternate history departs from ours too much, at least at the beginnings. I think she has a really smart thing where, like, we get more and more of this book's alternate history as the book goes on. And I think it's smart because it establishes how much this world is like our world. And then it's like in by the time that it, you realize this world is not our world and you kind of, you know, you go through the rabbit hole so late in the book in some ways that I think, you know, the, the effect of, wow, <laughs> isn't life enchanting is sort of taken to new levels. Um, but yeah, it's a sort it's, it's a type of escapism that I think is actually really hard to produce. And that I think she does, it's more sophisticated, but I, you know, it reminds me of Harry Potter and, and and sort of the literal charming charmingness of it. You know, no, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, people have sometimes called it, I think, Harry Potter for grownups, and there's various reasons why I don't, yeah, like just that. I think <laughs> I think making comparisons is reasonable. Um, uh, you know, there's it, it's pretty different in a lot of ways, but it Super is in a lot different. of ways a more adult version of that project. Yeah, uh, because, it is. Yeah, I mean, um, I think we have to talk at least a little bit about some of the way the book deals with sort of the, I mean, the, the marginalized people, for lack of a better word, throughout the the setting, right? This is not a book about, like, the consequences of empire on marginalized people. That's not what the book is about. Right. But it's got several characters, Stephen Black we've talked about a lot, but also Lady Pole, who I think um, exists partly to deal with ways in which, you know, early 19th century England was not great for people who weren't sort of white gentlemen, Right. Um, Stephen Black, of course, there's several moments when, you know, he's a 
you're really reminded of the fact that he is the best butler anyone's seen, but he's still a black man in 1815 or whatever, and this is poses problems. Uh, early on, he bumps into a guy, and the guy immediately acts as though he's stolen his wallet or whatever. And Stephen Black goes through a, a calculus, which feels very familiar to a lot of you know a lot of stuff you see written right now. He's like, he's going to call the police. No one's going to believe that I didn't try to steal this guy's wallet. I'm going to go to jail. This is going to be really, really bad. Right. He's saved because at that moment, the gentleman in the thistle-down hair decides to take notice of him and transports him to Ferry, which makes, from Stephen Black's perspective, means the man he just bumped up to turns into an enormous tree. And Stephen Black handles that very philosophically. He's just like, well, that's strange. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's sort of the way he looks at everything. Because he's, in a lot of ways, he's the most sort of stereotypically English character in terms of his complete unflappability. He's he's a classic butler. Yeah, he's a classic British butler. Exactly. Um, But, you know, the the book is very much aware of that. And it spends more time on that and his conversations with the man in the thistle-down hair, with thistle-down hair, you know, who consistently doesn't understand this distinction. Um, and who ultimately, uh, so throughout the book, they've been talking about the nameless slave. And you, I picked up fairly early that this is a this is going to involve in some way um, this tension between the Raven King, who was a nameless slave, and our guy, Stephen Black, who was also a nameless slave, right? And the book's not subtle about how there's something there. Right. There's actually a great moment early on when Stephen first hears the prophecy, and he actually briefly thinks he's the nameless slave. And then he's like, no, 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 it's somebody else. And Stephen is kind of heartbroken because he's like, well, for a moment, I felt like I kind of belonged somewhere. He thinks this. He doesn't say it out loud. Uh, And then when the final... So throughout the whole thing, I was thinking, okay, so the Raven King is going to come back in some form, clearly. And I'm going to say maybe he's going to be like reincarnated in Stephen Black, right? That's going to be the thing. And it's going to end up with that. And that's okay, right? That's that's going to be kind of fun. But what actually happens is so much better, where he's King of England for like 20 seconds, just according to the land itself, until they realize they don't know who he is, Right. And then they leave him alone. And then he wanders off into this other realm entirely where he becomes king because he's, um, by the rules of fairy, which is murdering the last king, he is now <laughs> the king. And he's going to take things over and we're going to do things better and we're going to quit kidnapping people. Right. Um, <laughs> and the, that, I think, is such a more interesting dynamic of a way of having this sort of marginalized person who, you know, the book wants to do nice things to, right? Like, you care a lot about this guy. You want him to have a happy ending without making it feel too cheap right like putting him on the actual throne of england would have felt a little bit like okay i mean i'm, I'm all right with it but i, I would have felt a little false right because it's not yeah, how this no, works in 19th century england well and it isn't he has to go somewhere else yeah so I, I actually think this is weirdly related in some ways to like what i was trying to say about how she you know how she uses history combined with magic to sort of like re-enchant our own world because there's a way in which magic is always like a, a literalizing of certain you know abstract realities that we have so like my biggest thing is like, i feel like magic is always sort of a literalization of authority right like you speak something with authority in a magical world and then it, it literally physically transforms right the thing you're speaking to which is what authority does in any world right you give a commandment and people act but magic sort of literalizes that interaction and so i think with this sort of like cultural questions that the, that the book definitely invites right so the book you know it's a book written about early 19th century England. It makes a black man one of its main characters. Um, and, and, and it very obviously has like sort of this democratic project at mind, right? So you have the Raven King, who's sort of the beginning of English magic. 
you know, and he's the source of everything. And it's very elitist. Only the gentleman, Dr. You know, sorry, I almost said Dr. Strange too. Um, yeah, no, it's a real, it's a real, real problem. Yeah. So Jonathan, <laughs> Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, like they're, they're, you know, they're gentlemen who are practicing magic in a refined way, yada, yada, yada. It's very classist and it comes from like a, a monarchical past, right? And yet the book ends with sort of this opening of magic to everyone, right? Like there's explicitly a scene at the end where the former York Society magicians, who were all gentlemen, are now rubbing elmo elbows, much to their chagrin, with, you know, with the local folks, with the plebes, the potpourri, right? Like it's just open to everyone by the end because it's coming from nature. And so there's a democratic project the book I think has in mind that invites, I think, closer inspection. Um, you would agree with that, right? Yeah, no, I think the book definitely has a democratic project, but it's not, you know, this isn't a book entirely about that, right? This is yes. a book about early 19th century England, but of course, that's also, you know, we're going to start extending the franchise not long after right. that. I'm not an expert <laughs> on English history, but like that starts yes. to be not, it's like 1830s, I think, when we start yeah. doing some of that stuff in England. No, right? totally. Uh, the Chartists and whatnot. Um, and uh, like there's a couple other, there's a couple other lines, like there's a great bit. Jonathan Strange does actually take three pupils, and I can't remember all their names, but uh, two of them are gentlemen, and one is a man named Tom Levy, who is a dancing master. So he's not like a very poor person, but he's not a gentleman, and he's she says he has Hebrew ancestors, so he at least is ethnically Jewish. And the three of them get along pretty well, and the other two, he's the, he's the best scholar of the three of them. And so the other two agree that they'll let him, you know, they defer to him in all matters of authority, but they still always call him by his first name instead of Mr. Anything, and he still has to pick up all of their stuff. <laughs> You know, and it's just just great. But they defer to him and everything else, and they treat him like an equal. And it's this it's just a single paragraph. These are not important characters. Right. They just kind of show up at one point to kind of three stooges their way through, like, we're going to do something about it. Like, no, you're not. That's about the only thing they do. But there's this great line where she's not letting anybody off the hook. These are still early 19th century English gentlemen, and they are better, maybe, than some of their compatriots, but they're still condescending as heck to this other person, right? And I don't know. I think it really threads that needle really well. The other character I think really matters for that is Lady Pole. Um, so the, the, the women in this book are definitely not the th forefront of the book. Arabella does end up kind of being a damsel. In, they both sort of be damsels in distresses to some extent. But Lady Pole, who again is dies of a natural disease, is resurrected by Norrell um, at the cost of half of her life, which Norrell interprets as like, oh, once she turns 50 or whatever, you're going to take her away. Well, that's not Maybe great, but it's better than no life. And also, this means that this guy will like me and help me help with the war effort. Because Mr. Norrell's kind of a bad person. <laughs> um, and he, but what he, what the gentleman actually interprets this as is he gets all of her nights, right? So right. she spends all of her days exhausted. And he's enchanted both her and Stephen Black, where whenever they try to talk about what's happening to them, they can't. And the first time it happens, it's kind of a joke. Because we're talking about Stephen, who's definitely having a rough time, but he's can still sort of do his job and do his life and go about and do things, right? Yeah. Uh, he's having a hard time. He's exhausted, but he can kind of live his life. But Lady Pole really can't. And so at one point he says he tries to tell the other, like, depressed person about who are who are engaged in a Freemasonry of melancholy. This is the way it describes <laughs> it because this book is so good. But anyway, um, he tries to tell him about it. And he tells he's just like in the narrations as he goes off and he talks about a bunch of other weird stuff. Like something, a child who fell into a well 200 years ago. And all these sort of vaguely fairy things. And the other guy just kind of looks at him for a while and is like, I don't have any idea what you're doing. And then sometime later, uh, Arabella actually goes to see Lady Pole. And Lady Pole says, it's very important that you listen to me. And then you get a paragraph, a long paragraph from Lady Pole's perspective of just nonsense like that. Right? Like a, a whole story that has nothing to do with anything. And then Arabella's like, I don't understand. She tries again. And she tries again. And she's just 
written off as insane by everyone, including Arabella. Arabella's like, well, she got resurrected, and I guess it broke her mind. Like, what a shame. Right. And it's, I think, one of the sort of most quietly heartbreaking moments in the book, and Lady Pole doesn't exactly recover from it, <laughs> um, <clears throat> is she's trying to reach out, and no one will listen to her, and no one will believe her, and everyone assumes she's just, oh, crazy, because she's an hysterical woman, right? And again, right. the book doesn't browbeat that. It's not like, no, by the way, no. this is about how women's experiences... It doesn't do that. No. But it makes the point so much better than if it had done that. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, like, I, I think it's definitely, it's a book that like, um, so it's funny. I, I feel like this would be a book that would be easy to attack from almost a couple of different angles. One angle would say that like, you know, it doesn't do enough to to deconstruct some of the the less than ideal English characteristics, right? Of class or maybe of imperialism or pro-war. Like you could, you could maybe try and attack it on some of that stuff if you really wanted to. Um, likewise, you know, I, 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 like, I think it, um, you could try and attack it if you wanted to as like wish fulfillment almost, right? Like here you have these various characters who are clearly acting out these possibly symbolic plot lines, but I, I actually don't think either attack totally sticks for me at least. Like I, I don't think this book, to, to come to your point, it's not wish fulfillment. Right. Um, at least not enough that you could write it off as like sort of, you know, um, simple political ideologies wrapped up in character storylines or as even like very simple ideas about like women's liberation because that stuff's in there. But it's always sort of it's always sort of filtered through, you know, basically the the granular nature of the characters. Right. So like Lady Pole. um Lady Pole is logical in everything she does except these explanations. And then so she's written off, right? But she herself goes into a depression and she stops trying to talk to people, right? So like there's, she's dealing with it in a very human way that sort of undercuts her just being a symbol, right? Cause it's not like she's some, you know, like she is heroic at the end in some ways, but she, she, she does sort of fall in on herself in a way that is sympathetic without, I think, necessarily being totally, you know, um, yeah, propagandistic. Um, because I, yeah, um, uh, well, I guess I, so I guess the, how I would, how I'd wrap it up. And I actually, I wrote this down so that I, I could say it as clearly as possible. And I'm, I'm going to read from my notes for, for the first time in like a long time. Cause I want to say, I, I think sometimes it's so easy with a book like this, especially again, a book that literalizes a lot of symbolic things. Like we've talked about with names or how I think that magic is always literalizing certain features of our world to make them a foreground of the, of the novel. But, um, so what I wrote that I, and we can maybe cut this out later, but who knows? But, um, because of the project she's chosen, you know, Clark is, is limited by England's actual character and history, right? It's monarchical, it's class-based, romantic, stuffy, it's white, it's built on tribal ghosts. So like, I actually think like some of the John Usglass stuff is so smart because of course, you know, there's still this regional, you know, um, tension in England to this day, right? It's why all the accents are so varied. They come from different peoples, um, who have been conquered and reconquered, you know, for the last 2000 years. Um, but I think that, you know, even though she invites a certain cultural gloss, she really makes the argument that like, even though England may be everything its critics hate, it could be better without losing, and maybe even by enhancing its greatest charms, it could be better than it already is, right? So like its democratic tendencies, its love of nature, and in fact, like the biggest bend of political history in England, you could argue, is sort of the way in which um, traditional power has been used to bring up 
you know, a democratic form of government, right? Like there's, there's a class system that has continually been put to use to at least broaden power, if not ever re- remove it from a class-based system. Does that make sense? Like, and that, that, that's like maybe a generous reading in some ways, but I, I think she really basically says, I'm dealing with England, here are all its faults, here are all the ways it could be better, but I'm going to leave those in tension without like kind of cheaply dismissing all of English history or without cheaply changing it so that none of it happened. And I think it's, like you said, she threads the needle about perfectly for me, especially, again, even more so in the second read for me than the first read. I thought she did it even better having gone through it this time than nine years ago. Like nine years ago, I think I might have taken umbrage with a few things that this time I thought she did really well. Okay, so I think we've dealt with a lot of the sort of broader thematic concerns that I think we both wanted to deal with. Uh, I think we'd probably be repeating ourselves if we kept going on that. So, but there's a lot of really great details in this book. Um, this book is really well crafted on a sentence by sentence uh, level. It's just really, it's just a really good book. I don't want to just keep saying that, but uh, it shows a ton of artistry. It took her like ten years to write it. I mean, she it's and it's the only thing I should note. As of right now, she has published this book in 2004, a book of short stories right around the same time. And that's it. Uh, she actually has a new book coming out later this year called Piranesi that looks interesting, but is not at least directly related to right. this book. Um, but it took her like 10 years to write this. She wrote it in chunks and bits and pieces. Uh, several people, including Neil Gaiman, read parts of it and were like, holy heck, you have to publish this. She published it. It sold a bajillion copies. It won the Hugo. It was actually long listed for the Man Booker, which is like one of the huge, maybe the biggest English language literary fiction award. Certainly on the yeah, list I, yeah for sure so she, uh she didn't win it but i mean she was long listed for that so everybody all over english language literature thought this was great and then she uh hasn't done much since and partly i i think i read she's actually got some like chronic fatigue issues and also i mean this is a this was a huge this is a project crazy book. Like, <laughs> well and it's i like that you give it its uh its credentials which you probably should have talked about at the beginning it is sort of like the ultimate big read cast book right like it is like the great like genre, literary crossover, satisfy all aspects of both tastes book, right? Which is sort of you and I in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, no, this is this is exactly, I think, the book for people like you and me. Um, so we, we, I don't want to, while we're talking about the big themes, I don't want us to fail to talk about some of the details because I think you can't really understand why we like this book so much unless you can at least, you can hear some of the language and pick out some of the individual things. So one thing we do have to talk about, though, is all the footnotes. Um, so she has all these footnotes throughout the book and some of them, like I said, are just, you know, somebody will say something and she'll have a footnote and be like, as so-and-so noted in this book, these are some of the names of the fairies he's thinking of. And some of them will be these long page, two page long footnotes that will actually just be like a quick recounting of one of the fairy stories they're referencing or something like that. It's a brilliant way to do world building, which is a lot of what it is. Yes, it is. Um, you know, because you can have characters not have to say things like, well, as you know, son, in 1926, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you can avoid that by just having someone say, well, the Raven King, and then have a footnote saying, here's who the Raven King is. Um, but I think you had something in particular you wanted to say about the Well, footnotes, so, right? so yeah, I think the first thing you said is that it, it is correct, is that it is one of the smarter ways to do world building, because for me, at least, it kind of puts world building in its prop. And she does, you know, she does a ton of world building within, you know, the natural flow of the text, all books do, and she does a great job of it. But she is sort of like like the fantasy nerd side of it, where she like has the whole thing mapped out and like hundreds of notes or whatever. You know, I think she smartly gets some of her best material that doesn't fit in the book 
into the footnotes. And so I think the excess is often relegated, but it's still so enjoyable. It's always fun to read. But there's actually, there's a few footnotes that I wasn't sure why it needed to be a footnote. So one of the ones that stuck out to me was... Um, Mr. Norrell and Jonathan Strange have a portrait made of them, right? They're the two magicians of the land. They're very famous. And um, the painter comes to the house and it's just sort of re- – so the, the chapter of the normal text just references their portrait. And then there's a footnote that actually is an entire episode of the painter coming and doing their portrait. And it's one of the most touching scenes in some ways to me because the second read-through – I, I don't know how you felt about it because, you know, you're older than I was when I read this book. I was an, you know, 21-year-old idiot or whatever. But um, I really believed the the unique relationship between Norrell and Strange way more on my second read. Like, it made more sense to me how they had such an attachment amidst such an animosity. But this footnote was one of the better ways of, I think, fleshing out how they have an attachment, which is that the painter comes and he's doing their portrait, and Mr. Norrell the whole time is paranoid. He keeps, like, you know, wanting to look at the painting and wanting to watch the painter, and finally he, like, leaves the room to grab something, and the painter goes to Strange and says, what the hell? Like, why is this guy bugging me? And Strange says, well, <laughs> he's worried you're copying down spells from some of the books, which the painter is aghast and offended. And Strange says, you know what? Imagine if you woke up tomorrow and you were the only painter in all of Europe. Not only do you have the pressure of doing honor to Rembrandt, you have to build the art from nothing. He has a tremendous weight on him, Mr. Norrell, or whatever it says. And it's really touching because Strange seems so dismissive of Norrell throughout much of the text that it's one of like the best insights into their relationship. And it's a footnote. And so I, I'm actually not questioning that it should be a footnote. I think it's fine as a footnote, partly because as much world building as it does, um, this book is so much about tone, right? It's a, it's a total masterpiece in some ways, I would say, of tone, of this kind of, you know, Austinian and fantasy tones and a few other things smashed together that she never quite loses the balance of, which is so hard. And I think the footnotes are part of that. And so I think there's a footnote there, partly because, like, it's time for a footnote rhythmically. You know, like, she's gone on long enough in the story that she needs something else in excess to keep it grounded in that, like, almost scholastic, you know, historical tone that is part of her incredible mishmash of tones. Um, But also, I just love that footnote, because I think it's a great, great moment of character work, you know? Well, and their relationship is so... I mean, Mr. Norrell is a great character. He really is. Jonathan Strange is too, but he's a little bit more of a... He's not a stock character, but he's closer to a stock, like the Byronic hero, like we've talked about. I don't know if I've ever read anybody quite like Mr. Norrell before, who's this sort of strange, isolated little man who doesn't really know much about how the world works. He's not completely incompetent, right? He's not very familiar with that. He definitely relies a lot on his servant who goes out into the world and who is just trying to completely control the destiny of English magic, partly because he's kind of megalomaniac, but partly right. because he's really worried about all the ways it can go badly. <laughs> and there's several times in the book when it does go badly. Yeah. And so you're like, I understand why he's being like this. Right. And every time that they have a confrontation and you think it's going to get, it yes. doesn't ever go the way you think it does. So there's this great bit when Strange finally, he, he condemns Norrell in public, right? He attacks, there's a whole thing about how they're running these competing periodicals, which is great, but I, I couldn't go into it in the summary because it was already too long. Um, and it also just feels so much like a 19th century. Oh, oh, it's, it was so, it's good. so perfect. Um, 
I guess it's a little, like, I read all the, I read the Chernow biography of Alexander Hamilton, which is a little earlier than this, but is the same rough time yeah, frame. Yeah, that's true. And it's like, everyone had their own weird little penny presses. Yeah. They were just like these horrible things about each other like under blogs. pseudonyms everyone that no their, one was confused by. Yeah, everyone had blogs, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. My favorite part is when they would write, like, adopt all of these Latin names for everything. And it was like, so this was <laughs> Alexander, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. So was he Publius this time? Which one? What's that a reference to? Somebody, <laughs> hey, who's that? Anyway. Um, and Strange writes a review of this book. Uh, that Norrell has put out. Again, Norrell didn't write the book, but Norrell has sort of caused to come out, which really downplays the Raven King, where he says, this is crazy. The Raven King is the most important figure in English magic. What's going on? And Norrell is furious. And, you know, he knows he's going to be furious. He knows this is going to be the break. But then Strange goes to the house to see him, and Norrell's just sad. Because he's like, I... And you realize that the reason, one of the reasons Norrell hates the Raven King so much is because he used to be more like Strange and really excited about it and even tried to summon him once and it just hasn't worked and he doesn't think they're ever, the Raven King has abandoned them basically. And they're never going to be able to be real English magicians if they're always waiting for daddy to come back. You know what I mean? Like that's very much what it is. And it's just such a great moment. Well, I I actually, I I read it this time and I I, I didn't remember it being so heartfelt where um, Norrell looks at Strange and he says... You wrote that for me, and I, I know you. I know why you did it. You know, and I, I, I remember, like, I was taken aback where I was like, "Oh my, oh my gosh, Norrell, <laughs> you're so." <laughs> I like, I felt, I really felt for him, and I, and what I love is that, um, is that the inverse kind of happens, like the climax of the book, or what you think will be the climax, is Jonathan Strange, you know, descends upon Norrell's York house, you know, his last place of refuge, and. Um, they, they're set up for this big confrontation. Because Noel, I mean, he's so interesting because he is villainous, right? Like, it's through basically like a cowardice that he's villainous. <laughs> but he, like, he, like, helps, you know, and he's influenced by bad people. But, like, you know, at the end of the book, he's, you know, helped destroy Strange's masterpiece about English, English, um, the history of English magic. And uh, he's also even helped the rumor spread that Strange maybe murdered his wife. <laughs> murdered his wife, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, these are, like, true acts of villainy and yet um when they finally come together now it's mr norrell who's scared of strange's reaction and strange is indifferent or at least he's not interested in that in that sort of personal grudge match he's interested in something else and it's not quite as touching but to me it was a total echo of like these two guys like it was the book proving because everyone keeps saying that these two guys they you know or at least the people who know them that they are connected that they can't help it you know like they want to talk and like I'm not, I'm not sure I would have believed it if not for those two scenes, you know, where like you saw how their obsession with magic really is the thing they love most. And because of that, there is this weird, you know, tether between them that you couldn't quite call love itself. But of course, you know, this need for each other. And I, and yeah, I thought it was a perfect little pair of moments. Um, Just as a, as a quick other thing, um, she, she names chapters in ways that are, kind of fun sometimes they're things like the shadow house and sometimes it's the education of a magician yeah. where the other words are not capitalized so it's doing kind of a fun 19th century thing but i loved this thing she pulled right at this time she has um early a couple of so there's a line in each of the uh a couple of lines in the in the prophecy that i didn't go into too much detail that describe the characters right and so one of the chapters is a reference to that it's the first shall bury his heart in a dark wood beneath the snow yet still feel its ache right and so you're ready for all this stuff and all the chapter titles are things like that then they make up and not long after that the next chapter title is jonathan strange and mr norrell and i was like that's great like that's like oh they've finally figured it out 
Like this moment here. And the chapter title, it felt like, I don't know, it felt like Captain America picking up his shield at the end of a movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like no, it had that kind it was of totally like earned. Yeah. stinger on it. And I thought it was great. Um, yeah. So, so one of the things, one of the things about the footnotes that's fascinating is they're sort of diegetic. It's almost like this book is a real book that lives oh, in totally, the universe yeah. of that and someone has written it, but it can't possibly be. <laughs> Right? Like, there's there's no way it could be, and it never tries to say it is, but sometimes it'll be like, and as Jonathan Strange said later, this is, the, as we saw later, as though someone is reading this as a history of what happened in, like, 1830. Um, what is that about? <laughs> so, for me, <laughs> for me, this is, like, one of the most meta things, because I thought, it, like, for me, it's, like, her playing with how um, 19th century novelists wrote novels because they're always like, like there's always there's this weird gamesmanship of like trying to act like a lot of this stuff happened, right? So like even like one of the weirdest conventions, you know, where it like gives you the letter of the first name of a town and it blanks out the rest, you know? Yeah, like that. Like why the hell? Like you know, like you're talking about Manchester. You know what I mean? Like I'm not confused that you're talking about Manchester. But I so for me like I, I don't have like any the best examples I have would be like maybe a you know, um, Jekyll and Hyde actually, I think has a lot of that where it's kind of refers to like real things in an effort to like, say, this is a real science that happened and here are notes on the science. And like, it does, but, it, but it's, it's weird because she's not aping 19th century, you know, history books. <laughs> she's aping 19th century novels. So even if this is like a novel, a book in the world of the book, it's a novel in the world of the book. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. No, and that makes sense. The, the, the book it made me think of the most is a very different book, but um, have you read much Raphael Sabatini? I know you've read Scaramanga. I actually, I've, right? re- I've read Captain Blood, yeah. Okay, yeah. So he does this in several places. Sabatini was an early 20th century uh, Italian-English author of swashbuckling stuff, basically, an author of historical romances, as I think he usually called them. And I've only read three of them, and they're all three very fun. Um, a lot of them got later adapted into Errol Flynn movies, which is great. Uh- <laughs> really. Well, and... I should let everyone know, you, I mean, you gave me Scaramouche in high school. That's why I read him. Yeah. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, I just couldn't, I couldn't remember if you'd read anything else. Um, so I read two, the, I read The Seahawk, which is not as good, it's earlier, and I read Captain Blood, which I think a lot of people would say is either that or Scaramouche is his best, um, and I'm not sure, because I haven't read Scaramouche in years. But the funny thing about Captain Blood is it's, it's written in like 1920, and it's about this golden age of piracy pirate, basically, right? Yeah. Uh, it's more complicated than that, but we don't have to go into it. <laughs> But the funny thing is, it's consistently written as though it is a nineteen, like early 20th century reconstruction of a biography of an actual person. And it's based on the notes from this other guy who I can't remember his name, Lord Hood or whatever. That's not his name, but we're going to call him that. And so at one point, there's a character, Lord Hood shows up in the narrative because this fictional person saw this other fictional doing something and then wrote it down. And so Sabatini pauses the book to talk about why Lord Hood wrote what he did in his non-existent <laughs> historical account of this. And it's great. I love it. But of course, it's nonsense. And that's what... <laughs> that's what this is, book. I that's agree. What, that's what this book reminds me of a little bit. And Sabatini's a little more tongue-in-cheek about it than Clark is. I mean, Clark is not taking it too seriously either, but it, it, I don't know what Raphael was doing in that. It really just feels just like a weird private joke that he made for himself. But I liked it a lot. So anyway, that's just me saying these two things are similar, but that's what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but I do... I, yeah, I definitely think she's having... I mean, I, for me, like... A lot of it's tonal, you know, like there's a weird, there's a tone she's going for the foot, and besides the world building, there's a tone that, that she's going for that the footnotes give her. And part of that tone is like impersonation, which I think you're right. Captain Blood does it. And I, you know, oh, isn't Captain Blood also like, 
Isn't it like famously like he like steals real pirate stories or something like? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he particularly from uh, Morgan. Yes. Okay, and and he'll say, so you may have heard that this happened to, <laughs> yes, to Morgan, that's, but that's yeah. not true. That's not what happened. The biographer stole it from Captain Blood. You're like, you are just shameless. <laughs> well, I thought that <laughs> can't do that sort of. Thing. I thought that was kind of similar too, in that she's like, hey, uh, Waterloo happened exactly as you know it happened, but also there were clay hands that crushed French soldiers. <laughs> and I was like, oh my, God, that's just Waterloo, but with like with with magic, which is, it feels like a cheat, but it totally works somehow. It totally works. <laughs> um. Yeah, so the footnotes are wild, but I, I mean, I'm a sucker for footnotes. I, I mean, I even sort of halfway enjoy House of Leaves, so... You... <laughs> yeah, that's... I haven't read that. I, I don't, I'm not uh, sure I ever will, but... Um, what was... I haven't read it in years. <laughs> I probably wouldn't anymore, but anyway. No, but on, on, the, on the point of tone real quick, because what I said at the beginning is true, is like, I think what, what got me through this book the first time, and like, not in like a negative way... Um, it's it's the language, and not for me. Like, it, there's always a language element. Like, you know, I, I've definitely read. Like, I read Asimov. I read people who don't care about prose. Um, but a book, but books that I love, you know, they they do care about prose, and I think she definitely does. I mean, you mentioned just off the top of your head, right? Freemasonry of melancholy. She's good with language. Period. In a, in a kind of a fun you know, um, mellifluous way, right? Like she has that little sing-song gift. But uh, but also for me, it is that, it, for me, it's classically, you know, British, or I should probably say English for her sake, um, that sort of wit that just takes things on its head, things that should be very serious and makes a dry joke out of it. So like one of my examples is, you know, Strange's dad has just died and he's terrible. And there's a whole funny thing about that before we even meet Strange. Um, but he goes to visit basically, you know, you know his gal and one of the gal's relations doesn't know what to say and the the quote is you know under other circumstances this relation um wouldn't have known what to say but happily stranger's father had just died and that provided a subject (laughs) which is like one of the (laughs) it's one of the smallest examples of her wit but it, it does always like in some ways like no matter how big the stakes are they're always brought down to the level of like you know, a drawing room awkwardness, right? That like everything is sort of petty, even the things that aren't petty, which I think is one of the great tonal accomplishments of someone like Austin or Dickens. Well, again, it reminded me, again, I literally just read Sense and Sensibility or listened to the Rosamund Pike audiobook, which is great for the record. <laughs> um, and so this horrible thing has happened where this man has like strung this young woman along and, and sort of almost put her honor in question and then abandoned her, right? And so everyone is saying horrible things. And there's this kind of ridiculous character in the side who says, you know, she was never going to say his name again and she was going to tell all of her friends and family that she was never going to say his name again. You know, <laughs> the way Austin will take this yeah. like legitimately very sort of bad thing that has happened and then we'll still make jokes around the edges that are very true to the characters as it goes. Um, and that's exactly how this goes. I mean, it's like, so comedy, I think, is always a way to like, to deconstruct, you know, the... <sighs> You know, the the various ways in which we're, I think, you know, slaves of culture and of norms, right? Not like in a really annoying academic way, but like, you know, when, like, so when, you know, someone goes through a loss, like the words that come to your mind first are always stock phrases, right? Like we're all these sort of stock characters, but when you put it in the right light with the right relief, you know, it's it's very revealing and funny. And I I think she's just really good at that. (laughs) And, and, And throughout, even when the book gets really weird... Like that's part of the whimsy of the fairies, right? Is they're all so mannerly and obsessed with vanity, like even as they're, you know, walking through a field of bones. So I think we've 
made this clear, but we need to talk about how funny the book is just to make sure that's very clear. Like, <laughs> we've mentioned this, but I just want to make sure we understand. I laugh out loud all the time, not like uproariously, right? But like oh, chuckle totally. all the time as I was yes. reading this book. Because again, it's got that Austin sensibility where every sixth line is is sort of a funny, dry, dry observation. I think maybe my favorite is really early in the book. Mr. Norrell is going to move to London and he needs to take a house. He's going to buy a house in London. And he's tr- he's very concerned that he buy a house, which makes it clear that there is a serious person who lives here, right? Because right. again, this is very early. No one's done anything magic in the Napoleonic War yet. Magicians are still being seen as, you know, ridiculous, uh, you know, ridiculous street performers. So he's not, you know, wrong to think it matters. And so he's talking to his servant and he says, you know, you've got to get me a house. It says to those that visit it that magic is a respectable profession, no less than law and a great deal more so than medicine. Childermass inquired dryly if Mr. Norrell wished him to seek out architecture expressive of the proposition that magic was as respectable as the church. Mr. Norrell, who knew there were such things as jokes in the world, or people would not write about them in books, but who had never actually been introduced to a joke or shaken its hand, considered a while before replying at last that no, he did not think they could quite claim that. And like, what a great joke! It's just so good. It is really good. <laughs> Everything about it's good. Like even like shaking its hand, like that little extra to make it less of a cliche. It's just so well written. It's really good. It's so good. I have one real quick too, actually, which I, I'm not sure it'll be as laugh out loud funny as I read it. But I, I, I again, I quite literally laughed out loud. Um, where uh, strange is in. Spain, you know, or Portugal, whatever it is, uh, fighting in a war. And um, there's all these people who are, you know, they're covered in uh, tattoos with skulls and crossbones. They have hearts impaled on their knives. They're soldiers with crucifixions upon cartwheels, you know, all these various terrible things. (laughs) And then, uh, like, you know, uh, they were therefore a little disconcerted to find that the English magician had outdone them in this respect of villainous presentation he had brought a coffin with him. Uh, one of them asked Strange what was in the coffin. He replied carelessly that it contained a man. <laughs> and, uh, I, I butchered that a little bit because it's such a long setup. But it was like, I just remember like, I've forgotten that happened, of course, because this book has so many details. But it is, it's funny. And it's like the book knows it's funny sometimes. And sometimes it acts like it doesn't know it's funny. But it, it's really good at setting jokes up. So I think my favorite sort of punchline is also in a footnote. So this all does connect. Um, there's a bit. <laughs> Uh, right before Waterloo, when the French aren't where they're supposed to be, and uh, the English are going to be in trouble, right? The English and the Allies that you know, are going to be in trouble, right? And Strange doesn't know what to do, and he kind of panics, and so he teleports the entire city of Brussels to somewhere in the United States, <laughs> <laughs> or somewhere in America, I should say, not in the United yeah, States, but no, in the American America, continent. Yeah. And everyone's like, "What are you? You can't." He's like, "Well, we're very far away from Washington and New Orleans and everything, and <laughs> it'll be fine. We'll figure out what to do." And there's this footnote, right? Uh, he says, I'm not sure exactly where we are. You know, do you think it matters? And there's this footnote that says, it's a long footnote. Uh, well, I'm not going to read all of it by any means. But it says, you know, the citizens of Brussels were like, oh, that's weird. And some people, um, you know, it was really unclear where he had put them. And so it skips ahead like 20 years. And it says, in 1830, a trader and trapper named Pearson Denby was traveling through the Plains country. He was approached by a Lakota chief of his acquaintance, Man Afraid of the Water. Man Afraid of the Water asked if Denby could acquire from him some black lightning balls. Man Afraid of the Water explained that he was intending to make war upon his enemies and had urgent need of the balls. He said that at one time he had had about 50 of the balls and he had always used them sparingly, but now they were all gone. Denby did not understand. He asked if Man Afraid of the Water meant ammunition. No, said Man Afraid of the Water, like ammunition but much bigger. He took Denby back to his camp and showed him a brass five and a half inch howitzer made by the company of Falkirk in Scotland. (laughs) 
<laughs> and it turns out that there was a group of people who had deserted and have been living, you know, yeah. in Kansas or wherever since. And I just, I love that image of, you know, you're a trapper and you're going through and you meet the chief and he's like, hey, do you have, oh, I don't know what you mean. And it's, the, the joke is so good because it's not just a cannon. It is specifically a brass five and a half inch howitzer <laughs> made by this company. <laughs> And it's just so good because I can just imagine that image. I'm just like, wait, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> How did this Napoleonic War firearm get here? <laughs> I mean, that's the thing with a book like this is that I I think she gets away with stuff that probably is excessive or unneeded or superfluous or whatever. But like, it's honestly, it's like almost every footnote is such a pleasure to read. <laughs> like even the um the ramblings of Lady Pole, right? At one point, a character late in the book says he realizes that all of her ramblings, when she is trying to talk about her enchantment, she, of course, is prevented by that, and she rambles, you know, supposedly nonsensically, but he realizes they're all sort of these fairy tale folklore that she's spouting, um, you know, supposedly probably at the, hest, at the behest of the magic on her. But, like, those are interesting, right? They're interesting little snippets, like almost like vignettes of actual little folk tales that I found, like, fast, like, they're, they're really good impressions of when you read like when you read folk tales raw from like this period, they're always bizarre, just like that. Like they're bird herders, right? But there's no explanation of why or what that means. And so even her excesses are pretty pleasurable. I mean, I think almost every time. No, I would agree. And like the other thing I like about the Howitzer joke is it also shows that a, a silly thing Jonathan Strange did kind of in a moment of panic that doesn't really have actually a lot of consequences for him or anyone else the book cares about. He teleports Brussels back not long afterwards and they win Waterloo. Right. Has these sort of long reaching consequences for everyone else. Right. A whole bunch of people left Brussels and then like joined the local like like the Lakota nearby. And like there's a whole tribe of people there now that are part, you know, Lakota or whatever the other right. local tribe was and are part like random because they weren't even all like Belgian, like no, right? <laughs> they're, yeah, they're very just a really good, yeah, Europeans <laughs> who are now trapped in America before any American colonists had made it that far, <laughs> basically. Who you know apparently managed to ingratiate themselves <laughs> with some of the locals, and it was fine. But yeah, it's just I don't know. It's just a great. I do think. I mean, I love some of the ways that. So we, we talked about how she weaves in history, big picture, but I mean, she she knows her kind of like. Um, she knows what her tonal map is as far as like the people that she's imitating or playing around with. So like there's a point in the book, which again is, a, is a, it's like an important plot point. So she's not just fitting it in for no reason. Cause one of the big plots of the book is how Norrell, um, he sequesters and kind of miserly holds on to all of the magical books of England, right? Like he buys them up before anyone else will, and he doesn't share them. And he actually doesn't even share his most precious ones with Strange. He hides them from Strange out of fear that Strange will misuse them. And so when Strange is at war, um, a famous library goes up for sale because the um, the Duke who owned it died. And uh, it's the Duke of Roxburgh's library auction. And it's real. That's a real library auction that actually happened. And the footnote says that it lasted for like 42 days and there were two duels. I, I couldn't verify that. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know if there were two duels. <laughs> but she like, you know, she quotes from Samuel Johnson's dictionary and she talks about Sir Walter Sc Scott showing up and like, you know, writing a letter that condemns um, Mr. Norrell's behavior toward Arabella Strange, Strange's wife. And I, I just feel like, you know, it's, it's all these little points of real history that are, yeah, they, 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 you know, they have the bigger picture stuff we talked about. But also, it, it literally was like, 
it's I don't think it's, it's not usually fun for me to be like, oh, is that like is that Lord Byron? Like Lord Byron stuff was not as good, but Samuel Johnson's dictionary, you know, using a word from that and having I don't know, it just it was really pleasurable. Again, like she uses everything she has at her behest to make even these kind of mundane points more enjoyable. My favorite note like that is when Strange has goofed up in the first part of the war and he's tried to raise a bunch of like Italian soldiers, I think it is, to tell him something about troop movements, like they're dead and he tried to call, you know, speak to the dead, which is a common thing in, in this kind of story. But then he can't figure out how to dismiss them. And so they're just following him around. And it's actually pretty grotesque. It's really good. And she cuts it to say that there's this great, there's a portrait painted by Goya of Strange being surrounded by these men. And she's like, what a great, and you can, you, know, you can see it, right? You can just Spain. see like, it. Of course. <laughs> Yeah, you can see everything about, you know exactly what that looks like if you know anything about Goya's paintings, which I don't know a lot, but Same. I know enough no, to I know exactly what this yeah, looks like. Yeah, I almost like. know nothing, but yeah, <laughs> she picks the exact tonal representation for what she's talking about without necessarily, without ever letting it, for me at least, like there's points when like, yeah, there's slippage into maybe caricature, but she she really does borrow the exact amount, right? She doesn't make a huge thing about Goya. She, she didn't describe the painting very long. She just puts it in there and she moves on. And it's perfect. It gives you the flavor without making it just totally derivative. Yeah, and it mostly doesn't feel like a bad Doctor Who episode where like here's <laughs> Alan Cumming right. doing a really bizarre James the First. Have you seen that episode where Alan Cumming does like the world's foppiest version of James the First? You know, I ha- really wild. I have not somehow actually. The one that I liked was where he uh, he actually hangs out with one of Napoleon's or no, who is oh with one of that's the girl in the fireplace. It's that one. Um, oh, that's that's because it's one of the best episodes of the show. Yeah, yeah Madame de Pompadour. Yes, that's a very my good God, episode. I can't remember her name. Anyway. Um, yeah, okay, so what other nitty-gritty stuff do you want to get into, or do you want to change tracks? I guess one little side note that I have, as we maybe change things up, um, today is uh, Wordsworth's birthday. Uh, I actually just forgot how long it's been, a while, um, 250 years, something like that. Um, and so I, I kept thinking through this book like that um, it would be very easy, I think, to kind of make Mr. Norrell neoclassicism, you know, kind of a, a relic of the Enlightenment, where he is very stodgy and studious and rational, and you could very easily make Strange just, you know, a Byronic copycat, basically. Um, and I think that, I think she does a good job actually making Strange more than that in the end. But I, if there if there is, like, a, a real-life analogy for, I think, Strange and Norrell's, you know, um, tiffs and their fights. It's actually with Wordsworth, who was a, you know, earlier romantic poet, and Byron, who's a later romantic poet, because they're like these two distinct movements. And actually, the French Revolution and Waterloo, that's a lot of what they splintered over, because by the time, you know, Napoleon's happening, Wordsworth is an elder, you know, he's, he's kind of an elder statesman, and he's more conservative, and Byron is young and revolutionary. Um, I just wanted to fit this in there, because Adam Roberts, who's a great sci-fi writer, but also like a he as a Cambridge professor of 19th century literature he tweeted out that um, Byron called Wordsworth two unfortunate nicknames the first is Turdsworth which is funny enough um, the second is words words which is incredible <laughs> but I but I thought that the way in which like Byron only exists because Wordsworth happened first but then they kind of quarreled within their own little world. Like from the outside, they're the exact same. They're both romantic poets. But as you get into the granular, they're sort of rivals. I actually thought it's a pretty perfect analogy for what these two main characters are going through throughout the novel. Also, you know, words, words. That's great. So, That's very good. 
that that makes a lot of sense. I have to quickly confess to you. Um, for a moment, I knew I was wrong. Like I just I was, but my brain had mixed up uh, Wordsworth and Walt Whitman, and I was like, this timeline doesn't make any sense. Joel, <laughs> Walt Whitman wrote about Abraham Lincoln. I know I'm wrong because Joel knows poetry and I don't. But it, I had to actually Google it. It was like, what what am I doing wrong here? And that's what it is. So anyway, I just want you to know. That's why for about 30 seconds there, I was existing in an alternate universe totally where things fine. didn't make any sense at all. <laughs> I do that all the time. <laughs> oh, man, same. I was once halfway through explaining how Carrie Mulligan got to be famous partly because of an episode of Doctor Who. Right. And then tried to talk about how she was in Brokeback Mountain. And I was like, wait a minute. That can't be no, right. Can't. And realizing I had conflated her with Michelle Williams <laughs> and had like – it was like a oh, – anyway. They do look alike. I did that Those one. two look alike for sure. I mean, yeah, ish. But I, I just conflated them entirely in my brain. And so as I was talking to this with a friend, I was like, this timeline doesn't make any sense. That She can't have done this and then that. What am I doing? <laughs> oh, my God. All right. One last, like, nitty-gritty thing before we may have a, a few more fun questions. is uh, So it, goes, it kind of circles all the way back to, like, the way in which she has synthesized so many different, you know, types of literary heritages and i i think like <laughs> i think part of that is just the amount of types that she has like the amount of types who they actually almost all kind of outgrow or shift a little bit as she plays them out but she she doesn't hold back with like fitting in every english novel type there is so, like i i did not do a you know <laughs> a categorical list but i tried to do a, a decent one like she has country clergymen right she has the classic domineering aunt agatha or type um who's actually maybe a little wiser. She has the artless young ingenue who's a woman of society. She has the amoral kind of William prototypes, both like the sycophant who's draw light and also the murderer who's Lascelles, like they're friends and they're, they're very Oscar Wilde-esque. You know, she has the beleaguered, <laughs> honest politician. She has the indebted dukes. She even has the literal mad king. Um, and there, and of course, like the romantic poet and the tedious scholar, like she just, she, she doesn't ever like, it's almost like she has like a bingo card in her head where she's like, I'm going to make sure I tick off like the domineering aunt of the bachelor father who actually, again, like she's so smart because the aunt is a type. It's one, it's one of the aunts at the very end of the book, um, who is not important. I won't get into it too much, but she's important, but she, um, there's a moment when they're going to try and hide something, a couple of the main characters, from a younger woman. And the aunt, who's been kind of a domineering stereotype, says, no, no, you must tell the young woman she deserves to know. And I did think, as like a slightly bigger point, Clark continually does that. Like as soon as the characters is, like as soon as the caricature is established, she does throw in little details to flesh it out, which I, I really enjoyed. You know, it just, it gave it more depth every time. But yeah, she hits like every stock type there is. Um, and I guess that's maybe, maybe my fun question is like, who do you think best kind of transcended their type or who didn't maybe, you know, who was typecast and didn't break out of it for you? I don't know if I, I mean, draw light just kind of, you can kind of, you can kind of plot draw, draw light's arc pretty early, but I, th I still thought it was compelling and like certainly the way he dies is horrifying. Um, LaSalle shoots him and then he I like know. gets sucked into the earth. It's actually, it's really oh, quite, it's, it's the incredible. book is not by any means a horror book, but it's got a couple moments where you're like, oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, uh, as someone tweeted recently, I can't remember who, it's like, it belongs to the emerging genre of floral horror, which Annihilation and yeah. uh, whatever else it is came out recently. Mid Midsummer, Annihilation and Midsummer, <laughs> which I haven't seen, but I know. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, the character I I I, th I liked what they did with Lady Pole. Like, 
this is one of the things you can do in a book you can't do in a movie because like there's a mysterious woman who's walking towards Norrell at one point right and you can't do it in a movie and keep that person mysterious because like oh well that's you know so and so who's playing right. this character. I recognize her but a mysterious <laughs> woman approaches Norrell and tries to shoot him in the head I know and it doesn't work out and it's Lady Pole and it's such a great like because it's been years at this point that she's been trapped in this half life and she's just had it <laughs> so she tries to kill him and I thought it was very very compelling and like later on when jonathan strange finds her in the fairy world he actually sees her in arabella that's when he realizes arabella is still not well, maybe alive exactly but still sort of well so arabella so i was gonna say actually so i era so i i i caught that in your summary arabella is alive right because the the duplicate is the moss wood or whatever it is from yeah i think that's right and so yeah, that's right because they dig up the coffin like that's right they dig up the coffin and it's just the mo- you're absolutely right you're but absolutely i also right. think yep. what i what i also liked about that this is the way i think the book and you can tell that she definitely she definitely wrote herself into a lot of these episodes, I feel like. Like, I think she had interest that just took her forward with momentum. But there is, like, there is always a logic underneath it that's never maybe as, like, explicit as you might like in a different book. But So, like, for example, the situation you just mentioned where Lady Pole tries to shoot Norrell and shoots Children Mass instead. Um, uh, Arabella has just come into lost hope, right? So Arabella's just been dragged down into this hellish, you know, <laughs> dance party with um, Lady Pole. And so, like, the escalation of her taking action, like, it has a source. You know what I mean? Like, it's not, but it's not, like, pounded into your head, even though the escalation plot-wise is always very causal, which I thought, again, like, she gets her, you know, she gets to have her cake and eat it too, right? Like, she does this very causal plot thing, but she always comes at it sideways, so it doesn't feel like she's just doing a you know, a little jigsaw or whatever. Um, but for me, I, I feel like the one who resisted, like I, I, I thought Childer Mass ends up being very interesting at the end, right? So he's Mr. Norrell's like main servant who also is like mysterious and weird. And by the end you realize he is like a practicing magician. Um, and certainly when, you know, magic opens up, he becomes an important magician. But I, I thought that like, he remained, I mean, even though he's a kind of, a, you know, a stock, you know, kind of like agent of magician, shadowy figure, he, he remained interesting throughout the whole book for me. I'm not sure I can break down why, but I, I was impressed that, like, he was such an important character who never quite lost his, his vinegar, you know? Well, I like the way his allegiance is more complicated. Like, after a while, you're like, oh, he's going to go join Strange, and that's not exactly what he does. Exactly. He just maybe gives him a few hints here and there. Right. Because he... He, he thinks that we kind of need the both magicians. He's more on Norrell's side generally, but he thinks that this is important. And, you know, I, I, I like him a lot. I think he actually might be one of my absolute favorite characters in the book, just in terms of I always enjoyed when he was <laughs> well, around, and coming, that makes sense. Same. And coming back to names, it's a, it's a, a little side at the end. It talks about his first job was as a pickpocket for his mom, who's called Black Joan. <laughs> and she runs a ragtag yeah. group of orphan pickpockets back in the 18th century. And that's just like a little aside about his history, which is just, I just like, what an, like, of course his mom was called Black Joan. That's an, that's an amazing name. Well, the scene when he briefly tries to convince Vinculus that he's like a milliner trying oh, to get a yeah. spell cast. And Vinculus is like, why don't you know what any of these things are called? Like, <laughs> that was great. See, I don't know much about milliners. I know they don't call their things thingamabob. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was great. Uh. All right, so um, silly uh, BuzzFeed question. Favorite spell, go. Oh, gosh. You know, I, I meant to think about this a lot longer, and I, I didn't. Um, I really like the first one Strange does, though, where he um, he first meets Norrell. Not, not the first one he does, but he first meets Norrell in Norrell's library, 
or maybe the second time he meets him, and Norrell says, or someone says, you know, let's see some magic. There are a lot of people, you know, like, let's see you do some magic. And Mr. Strange, or Jonathan Strange, you know, he looks at a book, looks at the book in the mirror, and then kind of makes some weird motions. And at first, no one but Mr. Norrell knows what he's done. And the footmen say, well, what's happened? And Norrell says, try to pick up the book off the coffee table. And the, you know, <laughs> the footman basically puts his hand through a holograph of the book. And Norrell says, you know, he's made the book switch places. And I thought that was a great example of how, like, this, the magical stuff that she did, for the most part, was always kind of, like, surprising and interesting. You know what I mean? Like, for it just being, like, magic stuff, she often had a fun way of either describing it or a fun twist on it. Like, I'm not sure I've ever seen that in an 18th century novel where you, or 19th century, you know, magic book where, like, hey, this guy created a hologram. You know what I mean? Like, that's that was awesome. So... That's my f- yeah. He yeah. made the book switch places with its reflection, and then I love later. It's like, well, can you get the book back? And he's like, No, oh, I, I mean, probably someone can. <laughs> no. I don't know how to do that. <laughs> I, I can't. <laughs> what about you? So I think there's a lot of good ones, but I think my favorite has to be the the punchline for the coffin you talked about earlier. Um, oh yeah. So when when Strange is on a mission in in Napo- the Napoleonic Wars to rescue this uh, English spy, basically, who's been captured. And so he brings a coffin with him, and everyone's like, what's that about? He tells the Spanish to get into a, you know, to go attack the the French lines, and they do that, and then, but it's too much of a fight, and they can't rescue the guy. The Spanish come back, and like, we couldn't do it, we couldn't, wait a minute, who's that? And the guy is standing there talking with Strange, they're having tea. And it comes that what's in the coffin is like a clay mannequin, and at some point, doing some kind of magic, he's switched the places in the confusion of the fight, and it's not clear to the French until... They get to the other lines and they're like taunting <laughs> this right. this spy, and he tries to like shake his hand and he just collapses and is found out to be completely hollow. I thought that was a <laughs> very takes, good. He takes the spell, like, which again, the French officer takes the arm off the spy, right? <laughs> yeah, and then like his whole face caves yeah, in, and it's just so a great because it's, it's it's both very funny, which is but it's also it's got enough of a material component, if you know what I mean. Right. If you'll forgive me for using D and D terms, to feel like there's something there, right? Yeah, like the strange couldn't just wave his hands and do this. He had to have some focus on this without again telling you how he did it no you're right and strange knew that by switching that yeah no you're right there is constantly like an out there's an alchemical thing happening but like an actual alchemy quote-unquote actual alchemy it is always mysterious right like you have to do all these like chemistry looking things sometimes but the actual magic of how these things create gold is never revealed right um she never loses that sort of mystery which i will i do love that you're right that is a good one and i also like which, again, I didn't notice the first time through. That, of course, is like a, a premonition of how he loses his wife. You know, it's the same thing. Yeah, no, you're right. It's it's The, the fairy does a, a much meaner version of the same kind of spell. Yeah, that's 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 a good point. I do have one other thing I have to reference. Sorry. Just in terms of a language thing, um, twice, I think, she just pulls the rug out from under you with one sentence. Um, she will do, you know, she, she's not loquacious i don't feel like she wastes a lot of words but she's definitely you know it's a loquacious style right right? like it's a it's 19th century writing it's a lot of i don't feel like it's too florid but it's definitely there's a lot of words for it and i think twice she just does pulls it out again pulls the rug out from under you with one sentence which i'm a sucker for that kind of thing i've talked about that before on the podcast um but she's describing when arabella is getting sick right she has long paragraphs about this happened and she was they found her and she was sick here and there and they'd sent for the doctor and the doctor said everything's just fine you know and on the second day she was a little worse but the doctor said no it's going to be okay and she looked like she was up and on the third day she died bam that's it end of chapter end of the second part of the book right and it caught me completely off guard when it happened i was not ready for it at all (laughs) 
And I thought it was so, so effective because that's, that's everyone. Oh, it's going to be all right. We've got her back. We've got him, you know, this great magician's house. Nothing's going to happen to us. Nope. She's dead. Bam. There was an, uh, there was a moment that I was uh, like, yeah, you know, I totally agree. Cause there's a moment that I was looking for that I couldn't find about how, um, you know, the English are never surprised at the disintegration of other cultures. <laughs> um, that they expect it, and I and, and like it was just a it was a punchy line, but it carried so much weight, and not nearly the kind of narrative weight that your line did. But I totally agree. She does just take moments now and then, including in like the mystical language. Like she has that that aside about halfway through the book where she talks. You know, um, I, I think it's like Children Mass was having one of his visions. Oh yeah, that's right, yeah, right before he gets shot, he like experiences sort of like an impression of fairy, and so it tur- the book kind of does this like you know italicized heightened language about magic and one of the one of the lines is just you know the pools were a magic worked by the rain and there's something that's very just it's very poetic and beautiful about that that i thought she had she had the ability to go there without it ever being you know a total a total waste of my time right i enjoyed it when she pulled out these tricks that i otherwise might not have with like a lesser prose writer so i just i don't know Again, it's a really good book. It's ridiculously well written, and yeah, I thought that punch again. I really that punchline really caught me in a way I wasn't expecting. I I was emotionally gripped by this book in a way that I wasn't necessarily prepared for. And like the last hundred and fifty pages are just kind of a just a oh, waterfall, uh, you know, because yeah. like everything's coming yes. to a head. And I just flew through it. And I was like, it's three in the morning. I don't care. Like, <laughs> no, it is. It's funny. No, I, I I I do remember this from the first time I read it. The end of the book just rips you through it, and it does like. It ends on a really poignant note, right? Where like he and Norrell, they can't escape each other. They're both sort of trapped in this pillar of darkness. And even though like they've kind of won, um, Strange doesn't get his wife back, right? Like he like he doesn't get to reconnect with her. He has saved her, but he, there's no actual reconnection. But of course, it's like it's a it's a weird kind of happy ending where you know the magicians get to go off and be magicians. Everyone's saved. But there's still there are still consequences, you know, and I, I yeah, and I th- I thought that was and like I, even like the horror of the the nighttime ball for Lady Pole, you you believe that it's horrible, right? Like you really feel that she's yeah. having a horrible life, and same with Stephen Black, and so I think yeah, the stakes for as kind of funny as the novel is and as Austin esque, a little like Austin, you know, the stakes are still real, even if they're treated kind of in a funny way. At the in the end, they they have real human damage. I don't know if I have much more other than just starting grabbing random passages out of the book and reading them out loud, which I could okay, do for a while, here we, but no, I feel like no, you should just read the book yeah, instead. Yeah. You should. <laughs> yes, everyone should read the book. Agreed. <laughs> so did you have anything else you wanted to, to point out, or should we move on to what we're reading next time? No, I think I I think that's it. I mean, I, I think if I was going to – I mean, I think if I was going to put a pin in it, the only thing I would add um, – is that it's a book that you can read fast or slow. Because I kind of did both. Like I kind of started out really fast and then this quarantine stuff happened, this you know self-isolation stuff happened. And I feel like I lost the ability to read for a bit. And so I kind of just like picked at the book, you know, kind of just kept nibbling at it for a little while. And it was sort of the this pleasurable experience that I think the best of old fiction has, the old or old writing has, which is that it was sort of a, a nice companion to either sprint through or a nice book to kind of pick up and down, which is a really hard thing to be both, I think. Um, and I, I think, yeah, I think whatever rate you want to read it at, it's really rewarding to read it. No, I think that makes a ton of sense. I think it works really well as a you know fun book to read that's very delightful on the surface. And I think there's a lot of depth to it. Too. Exactly. Um, and I, exactly. Yeah, I would agree with that. Okay. 
So also there's a TV show, but I only watched the first episode and it didn't do it for me. Yeah, I never so finished I don't, I don't it. Know. Yeah, we don't recommend the miniseries. Not because we have real reasons, but because we didn't jive with it. I think basically, right? Yeah, I just feel like it didn't work. So that's fine. Um, okay, so <laughs> this was uh, this was a lot of fun. Um, we've already picked out what our next uh, big read is going to be. We, we, as always, reserve the right to do a small read, but we're just going to do those. We're not going to schedule them. Life is stressful enough as it is. Um, so... <laughs> Our next big read, which we'll try to do in, uh, I don't know, June or maybe early July, is The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay by Michael Chabon, uh, which is a 2000, book from 2000 that won the Pulitzer um, for that year. It's about a couple of Jewish cousins uh, in and around World War II who become major figures in the comics industry. Um, I don't know much more about it than that, but uh, it's obviously won the Pulitzer. It's very, very, very highly regarded by a lot of folks. And I've had it on the I should get around to this someday list for a while. So we're going to get around to it. It's not quite as long as this book is. So <laughs> that's good. Because the last two books we've read were both. War and Peace is obviously, I think, longer. But it's, War and Peace both is big books. long. Um, War and Peace is like twice as long as this book. I looked, I looked it up. It's like twice as long. Can you believe that? Yeah. God. I guess that's right. Because my copy of this book is a thousand pages. But it's not anything like the same sort of thousand pages as War Like it's not. The font is not cooperative. Yeah. Um, so this book is also, of course, well over 500 pages, but it's not uh, its not quite as long as these two. Um, so yeah, I hope you're staying safe in the quarantine, those of you who are listening, and those of you who aren't listening. I hope everyone's staying safe in the quarantine. <laughs> not you, Joel. Not, yeah, I I, thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> I did it real, real, real quick. You're giving a nice radio roundup, but since you interrupted it, I, I actually, um, I wanted to ask you, have you picked up any, like, besides the obvious one of, like, not sleeping through anxiety have you picked up any annoying habits in quarantine? Because I, t- I tell you what, about I'm not kidding you. A week ago, I had never finished a crossword in my life. And like, here's the thing: I don't have extra time. Like, I still have two kids that I'm at home with full time. I'm still trying to write. I'm doing stuff like this. Like, my time has not really increased actually with with this you know self isolation. In some ways, it's decreased, as it's true of a lot of parents. But you know, in the hours from like midnight to 2 a.m. when I'm not sleeping, <laughs> waiting for my son to cry or whatever, I, I have strangely and possibly picked up a crossword habit. Like I, I have actually gone out, like I, I'm going to buy a crossword book of a thousand crosswords just so I can keep doing it, which to me seems like utter insanity. And I just didn't know if you had also maybe got a little insane. <laughs> uh, I mean – so I'm always a little bit of a hermit, so this really isn't that different. But <laughs> the other the other thing is uh, I, I've gone back to some video games that the Assassin's Creed games that I have a really sort of complicated uh, relationship with in that they're not very good, but I just constantly wish that they would be. Right. <laughs> I've only I've played through like half of Black Flag or whatever that's called. Yeah. So they squander just the world's most interesting premise for a video games. I mean, it's not interesting in terms of as sci-fi, but in terms of a way to set a series of video you mean, games, right? You mean Michael, Fa- Michael Fassbender shouldn't try to make a blockbuster movie out of it? Is that you're telling me? Yeah, I mean, I don't really see it as being a great... I heard it was bad. I haven't seen it. I haven't movie. either. Um, and, I'm, and they put one of these out a year for a while, so I've played, you know, nine of these games or something like that, and I've still got, like, six to go. Uh, Jeez. <laughs> um, but the first one's great. It's, it's, it's kind of a prototype in a lot of ways, but it's it's about, among other things, being an assassin who sticks to a creed. And by you know, <laughs> five or six games later, it's about being a pirate while wearing a fun hood on your head. It doesn't really make any sense, but um, you can jump off of, like, the Duomo or off of, like, a really cool church in Havana, and that's pretty cool. Now, isn't, but isn't the best Assassin's Creed game Arkham Asylum? 
So there's some truth to that, yeah. <laughs> like I don't, I don't have like a lot of video game knowledge, but I feel like that's my hot take on Assassin's Creed. <laughs> so the combat system in Assassin's Creed up until I think Origins, which I haven't played yet, but it was a couple years ago, is very much the Arkham Asylum thing, right? Uh, in some ways, Arkham, Arkham Asylum was after the, it doesn't matter. Um, so it's, it's kind of rhythmic, and like you press one button and then you press another button, and you just instantly KO someone. Batman just hits them, Altair stabs them very fast in the face. Um, and I played so much Arkham City that I'm really good at that kind of combat now, which means that anytime I play Assassin's Creed and I don't just walk in the front door and kill every single <laughs> son of a goat in the room, it's just because I'm trying to cooperate with the game. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just... <laughs> That's great. All of the stealth stuff is irrelevant unless it's got a fail condition on it because there is not a single moment in the game where I can't just walk in the front door, flip everyone off, and just... <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. So anyway, uh, the last Assassin's Creed, I would say... That's a good answer. The last thing that I I wanted to say at the beginning, I told you this, I don't know if it was on one of our podcasts, but I told you over the phone um, that actually, so the copy that I have of this book, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, um, I got uh, at my library's used bookstore when I was living in Syracuse. And it's been, it's been red. Like the, the binding glue is starting to be starting to come off a little bit, but it's otherwise in pristine condition. And it is, not that it matters. This isn't isn't like a book that people collect, I don't think. But um, it is like a first edition hardback that Susanna Clark signed. Like it's definitely one of the books that she went to a, you know, she went to a bookstore probably somewhere and signed like a thousand copies or whatever, you know, like they do that. Um, But it does have her like a blue ink signature from her in the beginning of the book, which I'm I'm very happy about. I just wanted to <laughs> just brag about that that I I found it for a buck oh, yeah, at my library's cool. used bookstore, <laughs> and I love it. <laughs> that's fantastic, absolutely. All right, folks. So again, we're going to read the Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay next. Um, I'm really excited about that one. Again, I've had it on my list. I've had this one on my list for a while too, and I'm I really liked this yeah, one. Yeah, so, same. Um, again, we'll. Uh, we're not going to commit to a specific date because, you know, we're not going to do that. But sometime in <laughs> the end of June or the beginning of July, uh, I would say, for Cavalier and Clay. And, uh, yeah, as always, if you have recommendations for books we should read, we accept them. We don't promise we'll follow them, and we only read, you know, four to six books a year. So it might be a while before we get around to it, but we still accept them. So <laughs> send them to us on Twitter. If you have criticisms of this podcast, keep them to yourself. Don't at, don't at and, us. Uh, yeah, don't at us. <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty much all I got. So, uh, thanks as always, Joel. I had a good time. You too, man. Talk to you later. Talk to you later. All right. Bye. Final thanks to Lily Jarvis and Keenan LeBlanc for letting us use their song Water Song for our podcast for these last two years. As always, you can listen to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and really most other places that podcasts can be found. If you liked the thing, go ahead and leave us a review on one of those sites and tell your friends. In the meantime, uh, you know, see you guys next time.